I wanted to talk about um, something I think that is rather interesting, and that is where do our thoughts come from? And what role does our imagination play in how we experience life? And how does all this relate to mental health and mental illness and borderline personality disorder? So, as you know, I often speak from my experiences with learning about mental health and learning to work through my own mental health issues. And I also often reflect on my experiences uh, with clients in my mental health practice. Um, but today I was uh, thinking, <laughs> I think a little bit deliberately, and I'm going to talk about, I think, I think we have both non-deliberate and deliberate types of uh, thoughts. And, you know, the question is, you know, how does this happen? How does it how does it make us do things and so forth? Um, but I'm out mowing the lawn today and uh, and I'm just uh, just sort of observing my thoughts. I have an event coming up here that I'm going to tomorrow. It's a, a concert in uh, Vancouver in British Columbia. I'm going to see my favorite band, The Cure, uh, with uh, a few buddies. Um, so I'm excited about this, obviously, and I'm thinking, starting to think some things, and my imagination starts going, and I thought... You know, maybe this time, actually, it could, because this is like the third time I've seen this, my favorite band, and it's with the same buddies. Um, we went in 1996 and in 2016, and now we are going once again here in uh, uh, 2023, and it's uh, always been in the Vancouver area. So anyway, I'm thinking this time when we go... Uh, I'm going to like maybe bring a sign with me that says, Hey, Robert Smith, I've been a fan of the band for 30 years. Uh, would you play my favorite song? Which is incidentally called Scared As You. And you won't probably find it on Spotify or Apple Music. If you, if you want to hear it, it's probably only on YouTube because it's kind of an obscure song. So anyway, I'm thinking, what, what, you know, what if I made this sign and asked him to play it if, uh, if we were close enough for him to read it? And what would that be like if he could see uh, the sign and he acknowledged me? And, and what if they even played the song, right? And so I'm deliberately imagining these things and, and experiencing some, you know, some feelings, some excitement uh, and you know, I was, you know, even kind of feeling like if, if, if he was to acknowledge me, it would be almost like, um, so exhilarating that I would, uh, maybe even start crying. I don't know. Cause I've been a big fan for many, many years and I used to try and, um, play their songs on, on my guitar, uh, when I was learning how to play guitar. Anyway, that's another story, but so the point is that I was creating these thoughts and and when people are learning about their mental health they often have to come to the realization that they have uh they play a role uh, i think a pretty big role in uh thought formation 
and the feelings that immediately come from those thoughts. And sometimes people will stay stuck on the idea for a long time that they are not um, responsible for their emotions, that they maybe they come from other people or they come from um, other sources that um, that aren't you know anything to do with them. But I mean, if a person is really going to take responsibility for their feelings and how that affects their behavior and how it evolves into relationship problems, um, you need to find a way to take ownership of all that. So I mean, I'm, I'm out there mowing the lawn, I'm thinking this, and then uh, I thought, I'm going to do a little experiment. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to try and do like a mindfulness thing. I'm going to like mow the lawn mindfully to see like if it would affect my emotional experience. Right. So then I just started paying really close attention to um, what direction the lawnmower was going in, uh, if it was going forwards or backwards. And and, you know, like if I'm walking with my right foot or my left foot. And so when I started to uh, be more mindful, like my emotional experience changed. It was much more kind of serene and, uh, like sort of benign or I don't know. It wasn't like really, it wasn't really excitable or really negative. It was just something in the middle. So I thought that's a pretty cool experiment. Like you, if you do that, it's almost like an ABAB design if you're, you know, if you're into scientific experiments where you like put, you put the stimulus on and then you take it off and then you put the stimulus on and take it off. So, you know, and then I tried it again. I started imagining being at the concert and, you know, like maybe my, my buddies would see that I got Robert Smith's attention and they would be excited too. And so I started feeling excitement again, right? Because I'm imagining this uh, event that isn't even real. I'm just imagining this possibility. Then the excitement starts going in and, and then I went back to mowing the lawn mindfully and, and then it shut off again. <laughs> so I think that's actually, that would be something helpful for anyone to try so they could see that they play a big role in what they are um, feeling and how, you know, how feelings happen. And then I did some uh, reading today because I'm, you know, I was extra curious, like, where do thoughts come from? Um, because this is like, I think it's sort of partly philosophical, partly scientific, um, you know, because we don't know exactly how it all works. People make a lot of assumptions about like, you know, how do thoughts happen you know and is it some kind of uh, spiritual experiences or is it just kind of like purely biological like of course I myself lean more towards just the biological side of things um, I wanted to just read a couple of uh, quick things here um, uh, that you can also access on the internet internet if you want um, this one is from uh, where do our thoughts come from and it's um, from Forbes and the the answer was provided by Johan John, a neuroscience a PhD. So, someone obviously well educated in neuroscience, and he says thoughts come from nowhere and from everywhere. I think both contain an element of truth subjectively. Our thoughts come from nowhere; they just pop into our heads, or emerge in the form of words leaving our mouths. Objectively, we can say that thoughts emerge from neural processes and that neural processes come from everywhere. 
What I mean by this is that the forms and dynamics of thought are influenced by everything that has a causal connection with you, your society, and your species. We don't know exactly how thoughts emerge from the activity of neurons or how to define what a thought is in biological terms, but there is plenty of indirect evidence to support the general claim that the brain is where thoughts emerge. The neuronal patterns that mediate and enable thought and behavior have proximal and distal causes. So I'm just going to read a little bit more here because it gets a little bit more interesting. He says, the proximal causes are the stimuli and circumstances we experience. The, uh, these experiences have causal impacts on our bodies and are also partly caused by our bodies. The forces inside and outside the body become manifest in the brain as clouds of information. In the right circumstances, these nebulous patterns can condense into streams of thought. We can add to these identifiable causes the mysterious element of randomness, that seemingly ever-present ghost in the machine that makes complex processes such as life fundamentally unpredictable. Perhaps randomness is what provides the seeds around which the condensation of thoughts can occur. Um, so it goes on a bit further if you want to check out that article, but I mean, it sounds like he's kind of saying like we, we are in an environment, you know, we have a history, um, we're in a society and that, you know, that's like part of our programming. And then when we're, um, you know, roaming about and, and living life, um, little, you know, little things can get triggered in our um in our synapses and our neurons and it can lead to all this kind of like random thinking but i think it's important when you are um figuring out your mental health and if you are troubled by something like uh, borderline you have to get good at um learning how to separate the the noise from you know like what is uh, helpful because i think there is a lot of randomness and you know things just kind of pop in there and like what happens is and maybe what people are kind of encouraged to do by their you know the cultural groups they're in is to like take all of their thoughts seriously or or to take thoughts seriously that they don't need to take seriously to like put energy into into the the randomness and uh kind of go down like little rabbit holes or get into like thought loops that are unnecessary and that can like you know rob you of your energy and like lead you to have all kinds of uh feelings that you don't need to have you know because sometimes people judge themselves just by like some having some random thought about something that you know someone might consider uh immoral or something like that like it you know so, I mean, I think you have to be really careful, and this is where learning how to practice mindfulness comes in, because uh, when you start to learn how to be a non-judgmental observer of your thoughts, um, you really do practice, uh, like, not attaching to the noise. And when you do that... Um, I think it frees up a lot of energy and it um and it helps you to uh utilize the brain in the most effective optimal ways because i mean you're not being 
distracted. You're not uh, you're not being diverted. Like you can harness and focus your energy. And I've said in previous podcasts, um, like ideas about humans being like extraordinarily creative beings and being like world builders. And I think that's true. Uh, like we have incredible abilities and potential to do both like awesome creative things or awesomely destructive things, like depending on if we have learned how to live in our bodies in healthy ways. I was uh, thinking about um, the 9-11, the World Trade Center, and um, like the, the first thing that popped into my mind was, wow, you know, someone or some team of people had to figure out how to make uh, an enormous building or those two buildings. So that you had to have enormous creative potential and, and you had to be, you know, highly skilled in how to um, uh, construct these things. So it was those those um, World Trade Center buildings were that was an enormous creative effort by no doubt uh, teams of different teams of people and uh, engineers and and so forth. Right. So. It's pretty awesome that, you know, that we can create these these structures. And then I got to thinking, too, that the when the the planes uh, flew into the buildings, like in a way that was also a creative effort. Uh, I mean, if you if you look at it that way, like because that whole terrorist attack I mean it had to be planned out right and um, people had to kind of imagine like how it was going to happen and what they were going to do and um, you know how how they would complete that act of destruction so I mean erecting the building was an act of creation and also I think was destroying the building and so it came from it uh, it all came from humans uh, that were uh, using their brain in creative but different kinds of ways right like I guess I would argue that the 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 ones who flew the planes into the building they were not using their uh, creative potential in a way that like serves humanity obviously because they were like destroying and killing humanity um, uh, so I guess I would further argue that those, you know, those people probably didn't learn how to uh, separate themselves from the the noise in their heads. They were probably attached to some uh, extreme types of ideas about life and the universe and probably some religious extremism, I'm guessing. And that's what... Um, led them to think it was, you know, maybe a good idea. So I think it's really important um, that that people like learn, learn about this and the importance of uh, how to harness your creativity. Um, and I guess sort of to accept that, like you are a creative being and you have this enormous creative potential. Um, and it's, I mean, it's pretty tragic when either people don't learn how to use it or they use it in ways that is, uh, harmful to humanity. Uh, because I think we can use it in any like way that we want, 
really. <clears throat> and I don't think I'm talking about uh, notions of good and evil here. I think I'm just talking about different possibilities. And it's like, I think it's really just unfortunate when, uh, when people don't learn how to uh, have the autonomy and freedom for how to harness their potential. I don't think that if, uh, like if people get caught into some extremism, I don't think they, they that they learn how to uh, have that autonomy, that, that freedom of how to create. They get kind of, I think their minds kind of get infected or taken over by maybe someone else's agenda. Um, and that they end up just doing their, their bidding in a way, right? So, I mean, keep that in mind. Um, I was hoping that some of these um, thoughts would kind of propel you towards um, practicing how to be self-aware and more mindful uh, and taking time each day to do this. Uh, so that you could have an optimal experience in your body and, and with your brain and your creative uh, abilities. So you don't want to get, you know, unnecessarily sidetracked. You don't want to have your energy used up by uh, others that have their own ideas about, you know, what people should do with their time and with their life. Uh, I think it's important that we stay free and and have the courage to pursue our own goals um, separate from what other people might think is important for us. But if you don't learn how to live in your body in a healthy way, I think you are easy prey for any person or organization that wants to use you for their purposes. Um, so you can be like an easy slave, I think. Easily influenced. So, I mean, try that experiment that I was talking about with the, uh, you know, imagining something and then going back into a mindful state uh, so that you can see uh, that you can have an enormous influence on your emotional experience and that uh, while there is randomness like that shows up in our minds um, you know we still have the the power and the capability um, to uh, be attached to that randomness or um, or uh, look at things in a way that uh, serves us better. So it's pretty interesting to ponder these things. I think I'm talking somewhat about uh, like free will, you know, and you can start getting pretty philosophical when you think of all this. But I guess I can say from my own experience and uh, learning mindfulness and other DBT skills, um, I have been able to have that uh, more, uh, I can harness the creative ability better and have more um, and be less 
diverted away by false interpretations and emotions that can uh, keep me stuck on those false interpretations of life events. Um, I just recently returned from Vancouver, British Columbia, from my trip to see my favorite band, The Cure. It was an amazing show. Uh, it's the third time that I've seen them in 27 years. But I have to say, uh, it was an interesting experience, and I think I set myself up for a little bit of uh, mental health work that I had to do um, because of what I mentioned in the previous episode <laughs> about my plans to uh, try and get Robert Smith's attention to play one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite and very obscure songs called Scared Is You. So I did actually make a uh, sign to hold up. Um, that was about, uh, I don't know, three feet by four feet uh, in dimensions. And I wrote in very big letters um, uh, what I was hoping to happen and saying hello to Robert in the sign. And I also uh, said in my signage that I was a 30-year fan. So I guess my expectations were probably a little bit elevated. Um, we were sitting on the floor about 15 rows back, um, which is, I guess, a little bit further than I was imagining. And could have made it somewhat difficult for uh, a performer to uh, read a sign, even if it was written in uh, large font. Um, and I was also careful to hold up the sign when the bright lights were shining on the audience and where Robert was sort of walking around and looking in our direction. So I had to find the the right moment, I think I found two of those moments uh, in the whole three-hour show where I could do that. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure when I held up the sign, he, I think he looked in our direction and he might have tried to read what I had on the sign. Um, but wouldn't you know it, uh, that they never played the song. And... Uh, I think I had it in my mind, you know, like this was a real possibility that they might, you know, and because, you know, I'm a hardcore fan. I've, I've been listening to them for 30 years and I've driven to Vancouver with my friends three times, uh, which is a 24 hour round trip from where uh, we live. You know, so we, I think we drove like with pit stops and everything about 80 hours, you know, roughly in that ballpark to see our favorite band um, three times in 27 years. Um, so, I mean, I really enjoyed the show. I was singing along and everything. 
and you know they played a lot of uh, tunes that I, I i i really enjoy and have enjoyed over the years um but because my expectations were kind of elevated and and i would say i guess that thinking it through uh, quite unrealistic um uh, my feelings i think were a little bit uh they went to a, a difficult place when i was uh watching the show and um, i think i could say i even had a little bit of a splitting moment where i was like you know what they just don't even you know he doesn't even care that i am such a devoted listener and fan and you know i've put in so much effort to um to come to the concert and spend so much time listening and even trying to play their songs on my guitar i mean and I, I know I'm like one of millions, right? Who is probably in the exact same uh, boat for uh, being a fan of that nature. I don't know. But so I had this kind of splitting moment where I was thinking, you know, I felt like I'm just done. Like, I, I don't even want to be a fan anymore, right? Because it's like, he doesn't even care. Um, I was feeling hurt, sad, uh, frustrated, and uh, like disappointed. And... Um, so I had to like uh, process that and and it took me, you know, a little bit of time actually to do that because I think I invested so much of my expectations in this uh, this situation. And, um, you know, I was even thinking it's a real possibility that, you know, he would play a song that I want to hear. So... Um, Thinking it through a bit more, I mean, the following day, <laughs> I, uh, you know, st st came to realize that, um, okay, so, you know, no doubt they probably see these things in the audience regularly. And they probably also have a, ve a very um, kind of highly choreographed um, presentation. I mean, because they have lots of uh, imagery going on in the background and um you know everything is all the lighting is is specific to a particular song and the way things are are happening so i mean no doubt they probably give it to all their engineers um you know they tell them this is what we're going to play tonight in what order and this is where the encores are going to be and so on and so forth right um so that's probably more likely um the part of the reality that I wasn't, you know, accepting. And, um, and also that, uh, they are, you know, in a position to, to do what they want with their time <laughs> and they don't need to, you know, abide by uh, what the audience is asking. They have the, in other words, they have the, the power in the situation. And there's probably a very good chance that my, you know, my sign couldn't even be read from the distance that um, we were at. So, I mean, I was, um, I recently put a post up in the Smarter Than BPD Facebook page about willfulness and willingness. And I think I was kind of in a state of kind of some willfulness there, even though at the same time, I still very much enjoy the show. Um, but I was, you know, if you look at this list here, um, there's a, a list of what willfulness means and a list of what willingness means um, in this post that I made. And so 
I think I was quite close-minded. I was kind of like being a bit self-centered and kind of obstinate um, and kind of like just denying reality a bit and 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 then kind of holding a grudge and being a bit bitter. And, that, you know, when this kind of the little splitting moment happened, I mean, no one would have known this because, I mean, I pretty much do all of this work internally now, like nothing much shows on the on the outside but i mean it definitely was happening and it it took a little bit to switch to being willing to being open-minded and to explore different options be flexible and you know to just kind of like remember you know it's not all about me and uh there's lots of uh things that happen in these um situations that may or may not have you know may or may not be according to my perceptions and my understanding of what it takes to um, put a rock show together. And um, I mean, of course, there, I mean, what if they had, you know, 10 people in the audience holding up a sign? They can't accommodate everybody. But my thinking kind of is at this point that they just kind of, they have it all pre-planned. But that could be wrong too, right? Because I just don't know. I'm just kind of trying to be open and being accepting and um, open to different possibilities, which uh, you know helps me to not be splitting and not not be kind of being kind of bitter. And now I still kind of want to be a fan, <laughs> right? Instead of just kind of like uh, give up that part of my my interest in in music. I thought, you know, today would be a good opportunity to just kind of go into reality acceptance and this this um, difference between willfulness and willing, willingness, using some of these examples. <clears throat> Pardon me. I also had another uh, example I was going to share that um, um, one where I was uh, kind of pressured to accept reality quite quickly <laughs> i was uh driving on the road uh, home from work one day and um there was this gigantic piece of like um oil machinery i don't even know what it was but it was large and it was traveling at about like 60 to 70 kilometers per hour and people were passing this vehicle right because they were traveling kind of slow and I couldn't see any signals on this vehicle to indicate if they were going to be turning anytime. Like it was just a big, strange vehicle. So I decided that I was going to pass this vehicle as well. Uh, but right when I decided to pass, like all the other vehicles were passing, um, they decided to turn onto a range road. And my, um, my decision was to, you know, I could, I could be uh, a very willful and say, you know, they didn't signal and everyone else is passing and I should be able to pass. And so I'm just going to like ram right into them. But I mean, that would have killed me. So uh, I decided to um, drive into the ditch and uh, kind of like try and save my life, which I was luckily able to do. I did kind of drive out on the other side of the range road because it was very, I was right in the corner part of the, you know, where the road turns. And so I, I drove in and then I kind of drove out and then their gigantic wheel 
it kind of crushed my passenger door. But they um, didn't do any more crushing other than that. But that was kind of like a kind of like a very quick reality acceptance experience for me uh, because you know it was a matter of like life and death so that's that's another one i wanted to um put in there i mean i guess there's a bit of an additional aspect to that story um so after they crushed my door they just kept driving down the range road like like they didn't even notice and i was then i was kind of like thinking at the time i can't believe they didn't even like stop or notice or um you know try to see if i was hurt or dead or or anything right but this vehicle was so big uh and the wheel was literally like the size of my door um after the fact i mean after i was kind of thinking it through more um it kind of like you know, and there was a bit of an investigation. I did alert the police and everything, of course. But uh, there, they were saying that they didn't even notice that they struck anybody, which I guess is a possibility because I mean the vehicle was so big, and uh, they probably couldn't even see from where they were sitting in the vehicle. Like, if some little car, I was just driving a little. Chevrolet Cavalier if some little car would have been driving up near where they were or you know close to even driving underneath them so that was another part of the reality acceptance after the fact that you know and again in this situation they have the power right they have the the biggest vehicle and if, if anyone was going to get run over it was going to be me that's part of like you know when you're in a situation like in every situation is different so like every every reality is different um sometimes you can um uh, get what you want and ask for what you want uh, and depending on the situation you may be able to to get it uh, but you also you know may may not be able to get what you want and depending on who you're dealing with and basically who has the power in each situation. <clears throat> so I, I wanted to share those stories uh, just to give you a way of kind of pondering um, reality acceptance. And it does, you know, it does come with some emotional challenges. Like you can't just kind of step right into willingness. And I think that's an important piece to understand like if i wasn't if i wasn't like at a place where i could notice and um kind of work through my my emotions and like validate my emotions and and i guess talk to others who could have a sensitivity towards that and help me to settle um some of my emotions and the and help me to relax some of the initial perceptions about the events um, then it would be a lot harder for me to let go of the initial perceptions or interpretations and that's a very classic um, issue with bpd is where you kind of you you have you form the initial perception and then it's very hard to detach from that perception because the emotion is so strong and 
when people with BPD do this, I honestly don't think that they are trying to be, you know, obstinate or willful. They just literally don't have the skills for processing the emotions so that they can have more flexibility um, to be able to consider different interpretations, consider different facts. And it's almost like the more they stay stuck and if the people around them don't understand their BPD, then they're going to keep kind of invalidating their their initial perception, which of course is um, irrational, but to the person with BPD, it seems very rational and very valid. And they, they just can't let go of it until they are able to relax the emotions that are uh, getting them to cling to that perception. Like, and it's almost like it f could feel like, you know, like when you can't manage the emotions and you're thinking that that's the right, that that is reality, uh, it can seem like a, like a matter of life and death, really. Like it's like you're, you're hold or like you're holding on, trying to hold on to your sanity. Like I know what I saw kind of thing. Right. <clears throat> and so I, you know, I try and build in this, um, some empathy into the episodes. And if you know someone with BPD or, or you, you know, and if you have BPD to, um, have, empathy and compassion for yourself as well because it's not like you're trying to be difficult it can seem like you're trying to be difficult but i don't think you actually are trying to be difficult you are just not in a place of being skilled enough yet to uh, settle and regulate the emotions in uh, such a way that you can look at things with a more of a wise mind where you are able to consider other perceptions, other interpretations, and incorporate other facts into your thinking. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to do. And also remember it, it's not like, um, it's not like you can't learn how to do it. And it's also not like you should know how to do it at this stage of your life. If you have never been exposed to the understanding, learning and skills, that would have helped you to be able to do it at this stage. Because like where a lot of people end up drowning in shame is where they say, I should know by now, because of my age, how to live with all of my emotions, how to do all of the mental gymnastics, have all of the skills that I need um, to be, you know, a full functioning adult. And that's just a bunch of crap because how are you supposed to know what you have never learned? These things don't just like happen by osmosis. They don't just happen automatically like you grow a set of teeth in your mouth. Uh, mental health skills need to be acquired, you know, either through, you know, modeling from others or direct instruction from others. Um, and it also is easier for people who don't have um, amygdala area in the brain that runs hot like some people don't didn't inherit that kind of genetics so genetically it's just easier for some people they don't need to worry about learning to regulate the emotions so the thing is some of us do and that's part of the reality of life as well um, 
and if you know if you're a person with bpd it's like you gotta go okay that's my that's my reality and i got to figure out how to learn these skills and live in my body so that i can function more effectively in all the different situations of life that can sometimes be you know kind of challenging in relationships you know or in concerts or you know any in work environments in family life there's so many different places right where things can kind of um get uh kind of toxic if we don't know how to do these things which is basically you know have self-awareness recognize that we're making perceptions interpretations recognize that we have emotions that need to be attended to you know uh, have ways to work through our thoughts and think of things in different ways and to otherwise be able to build ourselves up and nurture ourselves but these things are all possible for people with bpd and bpd is a very treatable uh, issue so please keep that in mind as well it just takes time and effort and then you get stronger and stronger it's not like uh, you are ever completely rid of it because it's been part of your kind of like um, programming since childhood, but you can uh, more or less master it. Today I wanted to talk a bit more about the nature of judgments and why we might use them sometimes. I think there are actually a variety of reasons that we might do this to ourselves. One of them might be that it was modeled to us. So maybe we saw other adults judging themselves in various ways. And so we started taking on that behavior ourselves. Another reason could be that uh, we were judged a lot in our childhood and then we started taking on that habit and pattern towards ourself as a way of uh, being who we are, as a way of thinking about things, as a way of perhaps trying to make improvements in our lives. So I just wanted to talk today about that last one actually um, where people might use self-judgment as a way to try and make improvements this might be one of the most common reasons um, because we do live in a society where there are uh, expectations I guess for progress and keeping pace and meeting standards um so i mean because of that <clears throat> that reason alone there can be lots of you know wondering am i good enough uh am i you know living up to things and i've talked about narratives uh that we are embedded in in our culture that can be part of that uh perceived need to keep up and keep pace and meet expectations uh, present progress and so on 
But I wanted to really dig into this, kind of unpack this judgment stuff and like really, I mean, even if we do want to make progress, uh, is it the best approach for doing that? Because with my experience, um, when we are engaged in some kind of self-criticism or self-judgment, we uh, consequently feel certain kinds of emotions, such as uh, feeling inadequacy, feeling low worth, feeling shame. Um, and I think the, the theory there, the, like the theory of motivation here is that a person thinks, if I'm hard enough on myself, like if I punish myself enough, if I criticize myself enough, then I will <clears throat> want to <clears throat> pardon me, do things that will, uh, you know, get me some kind of result where then I could then uh, look at myself and go, oh, I'm not as bad as I thought, or I've made some progress. So the whole theory is to, if, is to try and avoid certain kinds of feelings in the pursuit of progress. So I just want to avoid that, you know, low worth feeling or that shame feeling. So, you know, I'm going to get on the exercise bike for an extra half hour, or I'm going to, you know, read my, my study books for an extra hour. Um, I'm going to, you know, do work on my project for, you know, an extra amount of time so that I can see this um, external result. <clears throat> and maybe that does work like in the short term, but I guess my thinking as a therapist would be that if we are continually uh, being uh, judgmental and we are filling ourselves up with the those difficult types of emotions that probably don't end up getting processed. They just kind of sit in the body feeling judgment or sorry, feeling shame, feeling inadequate, feeling low worth. Um, and the only way that we have to relieve these feelings is to uh, create something uh, on the outside world. And then, you know, the question is, is that thing that we've created, that, that bit of progress that we've made, is that going to be enough <clears throat> to be able to live at peace with ourselves? Or are we going to have to start yet another project, another project or do another thing to get some kind of external result where we can say to ourselves, oh yes, I'm now good enough again because I have achieved this result that everyone, including myself, can see. So I just want to take a look at another approach here to, you know, what we can do. <clears throat> because, I mean, I've done different things in my life, um, like my interests and my hobbies. Um, as I've mentioned in other podcasts, I was quite uh, interested when I was a youth in skateboarding. And I was also very interested in playing guitar. And like when I was doing those things... And, you know, other things in life that I've been interested in. I um, don't think that I was using, you know, self-judgment as a way to motivate myself. I just had uh, the sheer curiosity of, like, what it would be like to, like, learn this new song or learn this new trick 
on uh, my skateboard. I never had to like say to myself, you know, you need to practice. You need, you haven't practiced enough. You know, you're, you're, uh, you're not, you're not good enough because you haven't uh, tried that. You know, made extra attempts at that song or that trick. I just wanted to get out on the board or put the guitar on and have the feeling experience of, you know, what it was like to, to just make, to try to make attempts to just what it, what, what it felt like to experience growth. So it's different, right? Instead of it being sort of a, a punishment oriented paradigm, it becomes more of a, like a reward oriented paradigm. That's where the motivation comes from. I want to experience the, I want to have the experience of the growth. So I keep pursuing the activity, kind of uh, aiming towards and shooting for having something like that happen, where I, I, uh, I land a trick that I've been working on and I, I'm able to complete a song that I've been working on. <clears throat> and then when that happens because of my my uh, dr my my natural curiosity and the drive that comes from that when i reach that experience it's very rewarding so that's you know that's different and i think we need to keep that in mind because when i'm taking that approach i'm not filling up my my psyche and my body with all these really kind of yucky heavy emotions and you know when we when we do when we are stuck in this this pattern of self-judgment and uh we we <clears throat> pile on top of one another these heavy emotions <clears throat> pardon me eventually it does take a toll on the body where a person might start to experience you know some kind of uh physical or mental side effects, like you could end up with um, some depression or some anxiety or some kind of physical manifestation from all of the unprocessed feeling. So I hope this is making sense. I, I do think that there are different um, uh, approaches to trying to succeed at things. And sometimes this, um, this punishment or fear of consequences approach can be um it can be pretty kind of toxic and kind of repetitive uh and even if it does again even if it does get you a short-term result you're still kind of doing harm to yourself because you're you're again filling yourself up with these emotions that are not good for you to be filled up with you don't end up being uh, like at peace because you're always on the run. You're always trying to run away from the emotions that you, you don't want to feel. I really think it's much better to <clears throat> bravely face whatever emotions arise. If, you know, if, if some kind of judgment arises, then just kind of notice the judgment. Or if some kind of shame arises, just notice the shame. But like, don't be in a relationship with it where you're like, you're always on the run from it and you're trying to look for external proof that 
you know, you don't need to feel that way. Because it, be it becomes a vicious circle, it becomes a perpetual cycle. And perfectionism could be part of this, you know, like where people are just like, it's never good enough. I have to always be achieving more. I have to be always doing something better and more. And um, uh, because I just never want to feel that kind of feeling that I don't like. It's a harmful way to live. And people with BPD or people without BPD can get stuck in this pattern. I guess if they are convinced that like punishment is the way to get results or uh, self-judgment, self-criticism, I, I think those are just types of punishment. If they think that's the way to motivate and get results and you know, the best thing to do is try and stay away from the feelings you don't like your whole life, then you're going to end up uh, in that place and it'll, it will eventually catch up to you where you'll be having some kind of I would say mental disorder, some kind of physical disorder or both. So really, I mean, it is better to kind of be driven by just sheer curiosity. And when other emotions uh, show up, uh, like don't be like, oh, I, I have to do whatever I can to run away from you. Just kind of befriend the emotion, allow it to just pass. Um, even practice sitting with certain emotions until you can watch them uh, resolve. They say it takes about 90 seconds for an emotion to move through the body. So you can start to notice that they are temporary experiences. You know, all different kinds of emotions come and go. And when you get into that kind of more mindful approach of dealing with your feelings, then you don't end up with all this... Uh, I guess we could say stuck residual energy. Another uh, way people have talked about emotions is um, emotion or energy in motion. So it needs to be like, it needs to be able to move. And if it's getting stuck in your body, it has no way to move or you just keep adding it and it just is like stuck, like it's in a dam, uh, then that's not going to be good for the system. The system your body system needs to move. The energy in your body needs to move. So please do, uh, you know, stop those punishment paradigms. <laughs> Cut that out. It's not good for us. It's not good for you. Even if it's getting you short-term results, it's not good for you. Uh, think about any time that you've done something just for the sheer interest, the sheer curiosity, and the... Um, the enjoyment of experiencing growth for whatever it is. If it's learning about any subject, if it's doing any sport or doing any hobby or interest, <clears throat> try to recall what that was like and, and you know, apply that in, instead of punishment. And I bet you, you will be able to have more dedication you will be able to stay with the project uh, much longer than if you were beating yourself up. Recently, I was thinking about um, the challenges associated with finding 
balance in taking care of yourself and being helpful and available to others. I think this is one of the hardest types of balance to achieve. And especially when there may be a limited understanding of mental health and what healthy relationships look like. I think people often end up modeling what they see from their caregivers or their parents when they go into their adult relationships, not having really studied the subject matter through their own reading and so on. I mean, sometimes people do, but I guess what I'm saying is through what I've seen in my experience being a therapist for the last 11 years is that people often carry on um, old patterns and uh, the, the belief systems as well and the even the toxic aspects um, that they observed uh, their caregivers, their parents engage in on a regular basis. <clears throat> and I wanted to point out that there's this thing called, or at least what I've, I've called and I've heard it called, um, legitimate suffering that all humans um, experience in their life, uh, which basically means to say, so you're inhabiting a human body and inhabiting that body comes with uh, experiences of um, pleasure and pain. And there's this ongoing need for uh, maintenance of this body and the mind. But um, in the modern society, in, in modern westernized culture, uh, I think we end up stuck in this situation of uh, trying to get out of that legitimate suffering. So uh, getting stuck in patterns of uh, like laziness, uh, not doing the upkeep of the body and I and probably particularly of the mind uh, as I've said in other podcasts I think mental health is often bottom of the barrel uh, where people you know they wait and wait to take responsibility for this until they just can't wait any longer because they're having such intense symptoms or a disorder that they have to do something about it and that's probably a combination of like mental health ignorance in society and uh, just natural human laziness as well. But we end up uh, not taking care of things. And when we're in our relationships, I think we also maybe consciously or unconsciously look for ways to offload that responsibility, that legitimate suffering onto our partners. You know, and do people even know like what it means, like if you're offloading that responsibility in the psychological sense, <clears throat> which often comes back to emotions. Like, have you learned how to deal with and work through your emotions or are you looking for things to blame quite often for your emotional experience? And for the, you know, maybe the various stories and thoughts that you've conjured up in your, in your own head, in your thinking, 
that have led to those difficult emotions? Have you started to learn what it means to take responsibility for those? Because, I mean, I've seen this quite often with people where they are in relationships and um, they are continuously uh, giving in to being blamed by their partner uh, for the difficult feelings that they're experiencing, which in uh, many instances have nothing to do with what the other partner is saying or doing. Uh, they just end up getting blamed for some something that the other person perceived or they use maybe like an old event like remember when you hurt me uh through this action that you did um well you know all of my pain today has to do with that thing that you did <clears throat> so i mean humans can be kind of um kind of conniving kind of stealthy in their ways of uh, finding blame uh, and not taking ownership for their their emotional experience <clears throat> and I've been like one to really encourage like mutual support in relationships I've talked about the importance of validation in uh, borderline personality disorder uh, and and helping like helping others to try and work through their emotions but like again sometimes what happens is when you are trying to help it ends up being like this kind of enabling situation where you end up kind of doing the work for the other person instead of the person trying to own it and try and use some skills to to deal with their the things happening inside of them and it can be difficult to suss this out in different situations. You know, and every, every relationship has uh, unique patterns where people may be doing these uh, conniving kind of stealthy things to not take ownership for the legitimate suffering that comes with life. And again, that I think often comes back to just the the maintenance, the ongoing maintenance that is um, needed to live in a human body. And there's, I mean, there's lots of people that are um, quite good at the physical maintenance, right? They go to the gym regularly and they're, you know, they're quite into that and working out all the various muscles of the body. So, I mean, they don't, you know, need a lot of extra support for uh, the physical aspects. But when it comes to, again, the psychological, uh, emotional aspects, it can be harder to notice. But I guess you could say, like, um, if some of these things are showing up in the relationship a lot, if there's a lot of blame that is happening, if there is a lot of criticism, if there is contempt, if there is a lot of defensiveness, uh, a lot of stonewalling, that's John Gottman's uh, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse that I'm referencing there. So if there's a lot of that stuff showing up. Um, or if it seems, um, I mean, another one that sometimes people talk about is where they are, their partner wants to have sexual contact with them like more than they want to. So, I mean, sometimes people use sexuality as a means of um, kind of like getting a 
kind of like getting a, a an escape or a release from their emotions uh, and they can like end up using their partner that way instead of learning to take care of themselves emotionally and then having more of a, a uh, average uh, sex drive that's just something to ponder as well um so and then there's lots of other behaviors right there's uh, if there's lots of substance use uh, or abuse, that's like another sign, right? That uh, a person isn't taking enough responsibility for, for their health. And, you know, keeping these things in mind uh, is important. Sometimes people might say, well, what's the point of being in a relationship if, you know, we're not just going to be doing favors for each other all the time? Um, and I'm not against like doing nice things for one another, but I guess where where I have issues and where I, where I think people need to pay attention to things is when they are they get confused between doing favors, doing nice things, and enabling uh, weakness in another person. And it can be again a little bit challenging to suss that out. But if you pay attention to some of the signs that I was talking about before, you might be able to start to see that. You know, something isn't quite right here. Someone isn't taking enough ownership for the legitimate suffering and challenges of living in a human body. But it really is better, I think, in my opinion, if you are doing as much as you can uh, and doing like regular daily exercises for your physical and mental health so that your partner um, or, you know, or the people in your family can enjoy your maturity and enjoy your strength, right? Like if you look at life, sometimes people use the dance analogy, like like life is a dance, right? But so if you have a partner that you're dancing with who has more skills and more strength, then the dancing experience is going to be a lot more enjoyable. But if they aren't able to like remember the moves or be able to uh, use their the strength of their body to complete certain um rotations or lifts or or whatever certain types of moves so that the dance happens in the most enjoyable way then you know you're not going to have as much of an enjoyable experience <clears throat> that's one of the other analogies i use uh, another one that i often go back to is the um uh, taking care of your teeth because i mean people sometimes people even get quite lazy with that maybe in the when they're in their childhood but and maybe sometimes even throughout adulthood but it just makes sense right like if you don't stay on top of your dental health and you're brushing your teeth once or twice a day or and flossing and all that then you are going to experience eventually you're going to experience consequences uh, you're going to experience the pain of not having well cared for teeth you're going to have cavities and other issues and whatever gingivitis and probably uh you know bad breath <laughs> and other things that will you know leave you in a bad place and kind of like desperate to get some help so that you can not be in so much pain all the time and i guess you could kind of take that further like when you're in pain because you haven't taken care of your teeth like you might end up getting like angry at the people around you because you're in so much pain because you know when you're in pain it's, you often end up being kind of grumpy right 
So, I mean, the same thing applies with, uh, with mental health. If you just, uh, don't take care of it like ever or learn how to do it, then you're going to end up in some pain because you're going to be, you know, stuck in a bunch of probably unhappy stories in your mind and thoughts and which, which is going to automatically lead to a bunch of emotional pain. And then you're, you'll probably end up trying to blame other people for that pain, uh, which leads to conflict in the relationships, which can lead to other problems, right? Um, in life in general, because maybe it generalizes to other parts of your life, like your, your work situation um, or your friendships or, you know, your relationships with your children. <clears throat> and, you know, the sad thing is that people will, will ask like, why me? Why is this happening to me? What did I do? They would say, I only tried to, I only tried to do what my parents did, or I tried to follow the belief systems where they said to just try and be nice to people and do things for people all the time. So like, why is my life miserable? Well, the answer is that you have never learned how to take care of your mental health. You have learned to follow a belief system and sort of assume that that will take care of all of your health needs. But in fact, just following a belief system or some, some general ideas that, you know, you need to be nice to people and then it will all come back to you. It doesn't work that way. I mean, you got to, again, you got to think of your body as like, almost like a car, right? Or it's this, it's like you're in this, all this, this advanced, all these organs and, you know, this, these waterways, all the, all the blood running through your body and all the sophistication of all that. Like it doesn't just do all of the work by itself. You have to be part of the maintenance or it breaks down or you got to learn how to do the maintenance or it breaks down. I mean, you, and if you look at it like a car mechanic, right? You have to learn, you need to know how to take care of the, at least the basic aspects of your car, like whatever, filling up the tires, changing the oil, um, uh, I don't know, washing the windshield. Uh, you, you need to do washing the car. You need to do these things on a regular basis so that the car doesn't like rust out and break down and have all kinds of, uh, you know, engine issues, but you know, you need to learn these things so that you can do the maintenance. And that's, you know, I guess that's what you would call the legitimate suffering of owning a car or the legitimate suffering, right? Of having teeth you have to like take care of them. The legitimate suffering of having an advanced brain that comes with all of these emotions and has all of this ability to think uh, and tell stories and be creative. Uh, it comes with uh, some know-how, but and in our society, we are often deprived that know-how um, because you know we're in many cases we're raised on the TV or the social media. And, and whatever is offered in our schools or our churches. And I'm telling you, that is not enough to be uh, healthy in a human body. And um, it is not enough to um, keep you probably from delving into those uh, stealthy and conniving ways of not taking responsibility for your health that often show up in relationships. And 
I guess also show up as individuals when we just look for ways to like escape or numb ourselves out or um, not take part in being a mature, healthy adult. Today, I wanted to talk somewhat about what it takes to overcome BPD from my experience uh, anyway, which is probably a fairly common one. That being that I found out somewhat later in life um, what was happening with my health, even though I had been working through uh, my education in psychology and preparing to become a psychologist, it still eluded me that I was suffering uh, to the extent that I was with a condition that I didn't know anything about. So I wanted to tell my story a little bit to help you understand the process of working through this condition. Again, just from my perspective. So at the tail end of my education in psychology, I was finishing a master's degree and trying to get my uh, provisional hours finished, which at the time uh, when I was getting licensed, uh, a would-be psychologist needed to get 1,600 supervised hours. So I was uh, collecting those and trying to pass the EPPP test, is what it's called in Alberta, to actually become a registered psychologist. So it was in that kind of time frame where uh, I experienced some, some life crisis moments and uh, several BPD episodes um, until finally I landed in this clinic that I am working in right now, where I actually finished all the requirements to register as a, psych as a psychologist. <clears throat> and I was lucky enough to have a supervisor who I could um, work well with, and lucky enough to pass the EPPP test, which is notoriously difficult. Sometimes people repeat that test uh, five to ten times, but anyway, so I landed in this uh, clinic, and I was um, getting to know my new coworkers, and the uh, the therapist that I um, got along best with um, eventually helped me to see that I had some of these BPD traits, and that they were influencing my interactions with others and. Uh, and probably, you know, in subtle ways, um, causing some disruptions in all parts of my life. And I quite looked up to this uh, other therapist. And so um, took her suggestion uh, seriously that I was uh, suffering from this issue. And so I started looking into it and uh, watching some some YouTube videos and 
getting that book called Overcoming Borderline Personality Disorder, A Family Guide for Healing and Change from Valerie Poor. Reading that book was my first big insight that I did, in fact, uh, fit the pattern and have enough of the traits to uh, be diagnosable. Another great video, actually, that I watched, and maybe lots of you have already heard of it, but it's called Back from the Edge, um, Borderline Personality Disorder. You can look that up on YouTube, and it has um, a few case studies that talks about the condition. And um, Marsha Linehan and, and other, other pioneers in um, treating borderline are in that video. So I watched that video and that again resonated with me. So I kind of made a decision. I, I said, I'm going to make it my, um, like my mission to defeat or overcome this disorder or to make it so small that it had hardly any influence uh, in my life. Um, and I was probably, you know, one of the luckiest people to have borderline because I'm, I'm number one, I'm in the uh, profession of psychology. I work in a mental health clinic and I'm around people who understand BPD and how to treat it. I was even lucky enough to be, uh, to uh, sit in a DBT group that was run in our clinic. So I got lots of exposure to um, the necessary information and to understand what it's all about. But what I wanted to mostly get across today was the, the, I guess my expectations about how to get through it and, and how long it would take. One of the biggest moments of kind of shock and awe, I guess for me was when my, um, my, my friendly coworker, who informed me about my BPD kind of, she, she said, you know, it takes, uh, you know, months to years to actually completely treat BPD and maybe upwards of, you know, four or five years even. And that really blew me away. And so I'm asked, I asked like, why would it be so long? And she said, well, think of how long your brain has been developing uh, before you found out about BPD. How long have you been running those patterns? And you know what was the originally, what was the original mental blueprint that was placed in your mind? And you know that's years and years of experience, memories, you know, uh, behaviors. Uh, and ways of trying to deal with emotions when you don't really know how. So it kind of makes sense. So, you know, if I'm back then, if I was 37 years old, uh, so 37 years of brain development and brain conditioning. So, I mean, several months to several years is, I guess, a fairly small amount if you put it, you know, if you make a comparison between the two. But still, it seems like a long time, especially if it's, uh, you know, a disorder you didn't ask for and maybe you didn't have a lot of um, influence over its development. 
you know, you're placed in a particular situation in your childhood. You don't really, you don't really have a choice. Um, and you are affected by that environment. Your brain development is affected by that environment. After accepting that, uh, I started to have a pattern of working on this thing, which was basically, you know, come to work, do the best job I could with people, uh, trying to assist in the ways that I know how for different conditions. And then in any spare moment that I had, I would be, you know, reading about DBT or watching videos about DBT, <clears throat> reading books about BPD. And um, I also got into the habit of writing about it. And I uh, uh, hosted a blog for a while. Today I wanted to talk about what it means to learn how to live in a human body, but more specifically, how we learn, I guess. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, being taught what to think, versus being taught how to think. And when I hear those words, I often think of the differences between uh, theory and practice. So uh, you are instructed how to uh, do certain things, and then you actually have to um, get in the machine or be on the job <clears throat> and practicing the uh, specific thing or skills. So in many ways, I think humans do this quite well, but when it comes to um, mental health and relationships, I think we still have a long way to go. And I think we can use the fact that, I mean, therapists like myself and many others everywhere are always busy trying to uh, coach people how to uh, do these things in a different way so that they don't have so many awful symptoms and situations. So what are these rules for living um, that we are often given? Actually, I should say, I think we have, when it comes to mental health and relationships, we are given rules instead of processes for living. So people might say, just be nice to your sister or brother or to the person on the street, or they might say, uh, just love yourself. But does that give us enough uh, of a process to learn how to do it so that we're not just being like actors and using our willpower? <clears throat> I mean, if you're anything like me, where I grew up in my childhood, um, I was often given these uh, simple rules or directives when I was having a hard time. Um, of course, with the uh, best of intentions from my um, teachers and caregivers, but it simply uh, wasn't enough. And I'm going to talk more about why that insufficient instruction 
uh, isn't enough. Like even though we do have uh, practice opportunities with our friendships and in our families, these these simple rules and directives kind of like don't really get us anywhere. Like they don't teach a person how to actually uh, have a genuine skill. It's more like acting, more like uh, like willpower or just like a facade, really. Or it might be the same as saying to someone, like if they're feeling sad or depressed and, you know, it seems to be not getting any better, they, a person might say to them, just snap out of it or stop being depressed or just change your attitude. I mean, but what, of course we're learning more and more that there's a lot more to not being depressed than that. Uh, it could mean having to investigate your thoughts and how they can often be distorted and your beliefs and how they can be self-defeating and how there could be um, some possible chemical imbalance issues that need um, the appropriate type of medication or maybe the appropriate type of nutrition. And when I... Um, started with the uh, learning about my borderline personality disorder and all the related mental health issues. Um, it was kind of like the first time in my life that I started to actually get some real skill and apply it to myself for like the, the things that I needed those skills for so that I could not just be, um, like pretending, using willpower, acting like with the um, uh, with the people around me, and even like you know, like li not lying to myself anymore. That you know, I can be happy as long as I have certain things. When that's not the case, like you can't just be happy because you have some privileges in your life, or you can do some nice things, or you have a good job, or you're in a safe place in the world, like that's not enough to be mentally healthy. Like it doesn't make you automatically skilled for managing your thoughts and emotions and being able to do the internal work. So it was like the first time in my life that I was actually learning how to uh, regulate my emotions, how to label my emotions, how to notice the particular types of distorted thoughts that I would repeatedly engage in and how to uh, uh, release myself from those. So I wasn't just uh, like trying to force myself out of a particular mood state or doing things that weren't enough to get myself out of a mood state. Like I used to think if I just did some exercise or if I just did an enjoyable activity um, uh, or if I just like practiced gratitude, then I would be, you know, it would fix it. Or if I just got the right medication, then it would fix it. Like, and those things ha do have some value and they do help in uh, some ways, but it's not enough to uh, deal with the whole thing. And when those few things that I did uh, didn't work to uh, fix the issue uh, more thoroughly, then I would often, you know, judge myself as um, some kind of, you know, permanently uh, flawed individual or that I just, you know, 
wasn't grateful enough for things in my life, uh, you know, that I was somehow or that I was doomed, you know, that it would never change that kind of thing. But, you know, you need to learn more than what you are, I think, by default offered maybe by the people in your life, you know, the people that you know, the people that raised you or the people that you have come to depend on. You have to get, and especially if you have uh, an emotional center that is uh, operates in a different way, where you experience the more powerful emotions compared to others, because we don't all experience our emotions in the same way, and that's a genetic thing, and it's nothing that you asked for, it's just some people experience emotions with uh, much more intensity, and with... Uh, and, and it can take a lot longer to uh, settle them down. And so if you don't have even more skills than the average person to deal with that, it's going to leave you, you know, in a very difficult spot. I just have a couple of examples here. Um, so, I mean, and I often go back to my interest in uh, skateboarding, and I think I've used this one in another podcast, but... If someone is saying, just snap out of it, or just do this to be happy, you know, just be nice, just follow this rule, then it's kind of like asking someone to just get on a skateboard and drop into that big 12-foot halfpipe and just, you know, just do it because you just, that's all you got to do to uh, be okay. <laughs> or just ride down that big hill or... And uh, go off that ramp and and just, you know, go as fast as you can towards it. <laughs> so it's not enough just to be given these um, simple rules. Uh, we need to, you know, first go through many steps of learning. Like if you're skateboarding, you have to get on the board and go slow for a long time and practice turning for a long time. And just very simple things, leaning to, from side to side for a long time. Learning how to push, uh, push uh, your foot on the ground so that you go faster. Learning how to slow the board down. All kinds of things. And then you can work up slowly to uh, trying out more complicated things like jump ramps and half pipes. And, and even when you're doing that, you have to start small and slow where you uh, start on a smaller ramp. And and learn how to use your legs in a certain way. And while you're practicing all these things, you have to be quite courageous. And that, that courage is a, a huge factor in practicing skills in relationships too, because you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out when you try this skill, like to speak assertively. Or you don't know how it's going to go exactly if you try to... Uh, work through your emotions uh, using some emotion regulation skills. Like, is it actually going to help and settle the emotions or is it going to make it worse? I mean, you don't know until you try, right? So some of the skills that I turned to uh, when I started learning about more thoroughly about um, CBT and DBT and how they apply to me, um, the two of the emotion regulation skills I really got into, and one is called Ride the Wave, uh, where it's the ability to handle difficult emotions by accepting and tolerating these emotions. 
uh, and applying skills in certain moments. So like if, for example, if someone said something kind of critical or kind of sarcastic, like, whereas in the past I would immediately interpret, you know, that they might be uh, putting me down or thinking that I'm uh, no good, uh, I would, instead of reacting, I would uh, turn my attention inwards and try and notice what was happening in my body, uh, where what types of sensations was I experiencing, like maybe in my stomach or my chest or my shoulders, and you know, was there tension? Was there heat? Uh, and and also try and put some words to feelings that I'm feeling. Am I feeling put down? Am I feeling worthless? Am I feeling rejected? So I, I would try and tune in and put words to those feelings. And also kind of put some breath into my body, breathe into these feelings. So it's kind of like, it's like taking a step back, trying to be mindful and kind of go like, okay, I'm going to take a different approach. And I'm also maybe going to think here like, are my feelings the facts? I mean, I really got into challenging the emotional reasoning. People often think, you know, I'm feeling afraid, therefore I am in danger, or I'm feeling rejected, I'm feeling hated, therefore this person does reject and hate me. Um, I mean, our mind can spin all kinds of stories, right? And we can latch on to them when we immediately, when we don't take the a moment to pause and try some of these different processes. So those were two big ones for me that um, made a big difference. And I know that there's, you know, a whole host of DBT skills and you can that you can use in different times and places. And uh, but I think people often, you know, they have a few that they use regularly in in uh, many moments of their life. Another one that I often would use as uh, validation and self-validation. So I would start validating my own emotions, saying like, it's okay that I feel this way. It's, you know, it's understandable. If, you know, if anyone would interpret the situation the way I am right now, they might feel this way. You know, and I might use a bit of imagination, like um, being, you know, being there for myself, like kind of putting my arm around myself in a way, like, uh, and saying, it's okay, it's gonna be all right. And, uh, we can settle this feeling down. So having that compassion, and I would use that uh, until, you know, the emotion would, the emotional experience would kind of shift and change. And the interesting thing is, is when you uh, try to do something different is, um, you know, is the moment where you can have a different experience. Where, whereas in the past you might have instantly reacted to something and then got another instant reaction back from the person you're with, and then that maybe turns into a conflict. Now you might uh, give a very different response or, and maybe just focus on the issue at hand or solving the, the, the problem or the situation, whatever is going on instead of getting into unnecessary emotional drama like what you know that often happens when people run with their assumptions what they think is going on or feel is going on instead of what is actually going on i mean a big one for me was um if my partner got 
frustrated, I would think that I was uh, being rejected. And that feeling rejected, that emotional reasoning, I turned it to say, I'm, it's not that you're being rejected, it's just that this, this person is experiencing frustration. And, you know, it's okay for people to be frustrated and to uh, express that. And even if they have a frustrated tone when they're talking to you, it doesn't mean that you're being rejected. That was a big step forwards for me in learning a process, you know. But, I mean, again, what people might often do is just kind of like say, I just got to be nice. I just got to act friendly and nice. Even if I'm having all these awful thoughts and feelings inside, I just need to kind of like ignore those and then just be nice. And then that's what makes for uh, a good situation. And maybe it does give you temporary results. But, you know, what I think is that it actually is a disaster when people are just following rules like that. And why is it a disaster? I mean, because you end up with a bunch of people that are just acting. They're just pretending. And they're just using their willpower. And they are not um, using these moments to uh, discover skills and processes that will actually give them real peace of mind and like real sanity so they don't nourish that and then you know when things uh, when they can't pretend anymore because they're you know they're having too many their emotions are bubbling over they're having too many other symptoms of maybe anxiety or depression uh they might like blame themselves like i did everything that they told me to i followed the rules and i'm still you know not feeling good i'm still unhappy so they start to discover that maybe they can't fake it anymore. And when, and when they can't do that, people will often run to the doctor or, you know, they might figure I got to get as many medications, you know, I got to get, I got to get medications to cover up all this pain, uh, all these symptoms or to make them go away. Um, or, and some people will turn to other substances, street drugs, to try and make the pain go away because they want to be able to keep up the the pretense the the acting uh, they want to you know appear to be that they're living by the rules that the people told them when they were young right you know just be nice that's all you got to do uh, just be nice and pleasant to people and then they will treat you that way back is a very kind of simple rule that we are often told but I mean if people turn to uh, substances like pharmaceutical or street drugs, I mean, quite often people will just keep going back to the doctor and back to the doctor or back to the psychiatrist, as, you know, and they might end up with like 10 or 20 different medications and then it, that, it's still not working. And so the doctor might say, okay, we're taking you off all the medications and then they got to go through all this withdrawal and then they might start that process over again. Or if the person turns to street drugs, then I mean, that obviously is going to take them uh, to an even worse place where they are uh, and very addicted and then they start making choices to support their habit, right? And they might be labeled like a, that they're a person of bad character or they're selfish or they're immoral because, you know, they've abandoned their, maybe their family or their responsibilities. Uh, but all the while, I mean, a person like this has never actually been oriented to their, um, to the right skills and processes for living in their body and particularly learning how to uh, live with and work through the emotions that we all experience. So hopefully that makes sense. 
um, I'm really just talking about the difference between, you know, in human living and in, in human interactions. It's, it's not enough to be just given simple rules to live by, you know, like, or uh, commandments or you need more instruction than that. And you need more uh, practice using the skills that actually work. So you need processes for living. Um, it's the difference between willpower and pretending and intelligence and authenticity. So if you, if you are actually practicing uh, with the right processes and skills, then what you're, the, the good things that you do come from a place of authenticity. Like you're not just pretending, you actually really want to be uh, a help to somebody or you want to give back or uh, you want to be loving because it's been nourished inside of you. Today I want to talk about a few things, including what it means to learn to function in dysfunction. And along with that, reality acceptance and also a bit about the smarter than bpd premium skills training program and how it fits into those uh, first two areas of discussion so let's talk about uh, learning to function in dysfunction and what does that even mean anyway i'm sure it wouldn't surprise you uh, to hear from a therapist like myself and maybe any other therapist that you might encounter, that there are many things about the world that we live in that don't function in an ideal way. And yet, there is still the expectation that we are capable of being able to get through each day and go to work and be productive and to have some level of functioning. So that can be a challenge. And we should talk more about like why, you know, that is, especially on a mental health level. One of the really frustrating things for uh, therapists to encounter when they're meeting with person after person and conducting assessments and learning about personal history. One of the most frustrating things is to see the repeating patterns about you know what happens in childhood development what happens in families and what family dynamics look like and how there can be a you know a large or even complete absence of understanding what it means to be uh, mentally healthy and what it means to be in healthy relationships i remember being very kind of stunned after about you know two to three years of practicing and starting to notice these patterns and then talking to my my colleagues about you know like why is it like this and why do we have these like repeating patterns why is there so much common depression and anxiety and personality disorder and uh, having some of these discussions with my uh, co-workers and considering all the, the evidence that I'd gathered, like meeting with so many patients, uh, led me to kind of realize 
that, I mean, just like I said, we don't really live in a world that uh, is largely aware of these health matters. In fact, as I've said in other podcasts, mental health can even be like bottom of the barrel in terms of knowing what it means and it, that knowledge being generalized across society and uh, people taking good care in this way. Quite often what seems to happen rather is that people won't do any of that kind of uh, mental health work throughout their life, that kind of mental health maintenance until there is a breaking point where the symptoms are too extreme or the uh, relationships are falling apart in families and you know even where people uh, end up committing suicide and it gets really ugly and really extreme like that's when people seem to take note and take notice and you know going to therapists and hospitals and and that kind of thing so in other words there isn't a lot of being proactive when it comes to mental health and just like myself people often find out later in their life what it like what actually happened and what they're actually dealing with and and how severe it is quite often in when a person reaches their 30s or 40s even it can be delayed that long which is unfortunate because i mean a lot of things could have been prevented if the health uh, issues had been understood much earlier so i mean i've had to uh, kind of come to terms with like what is in the world when it comes to mental health and i guess accept the fact that maybe in individualistic societies uh you know we just don't we don't think of these things very often we think more about you know how we're going to make our business succeed or how we're going to uh you know pay our bills and how we're going to be able to afford our next holiday and that kind of thing like those are the the highest priorities and like how can we get skilled so that we can like get a good job that's how i recall a lot of my my history and my my development and kind of like make sure you know peter that you can get a good job make sure that you can pay bills and make sure that you can participate kind of in the in the material world like other than that everything was sort of not as important and i'm sure like i must uh share that with many people out there in terms of how they prioritize their life so what this means though i mean in all is that uh we are living in a world of uh, largely, in many cases, mental health neglect. So when uh, you know children are being raised in families, the you know the parents probably won't know much about how to uh, teach and guide a child who has uh, emotional needs that might be a bit different, uh, more emotional sensitivity, or you know someone who has a predisposition or vulnerability towards conditions like borderline personality disorder. So there's a very good chance that uh, kids with those kinds of needs are going to be with parents that aren't a good fit or they might you know, invalidate a lot of their emotions and just not teach them how to uh, live with those things. And consequently, 
the person who is developing BPD comes up with all the, you know, the avoidance behaviors and other tactics to try and survive in the world. And that, you know, all those tactics and patterns uh, that are not healthy ways, those are what constitute the the disorder, right? Where, you know, it could be anger, it could be substance use issues, it could be, um, you know, becoming, wanting to die instead of uh, knowing how to deal with emotions and, you know, all the various things that can, that borderline personality disorder can look like. So a person needs to learn eventually like that this is what's happening right and that this is kind of the world that we live in and you are largely like on your own when it comes to learning how to be emotionally healthy because the like the people in your life they just don't know much about mental health and they don't know how to guide you in it and uh you know so in a way we're setting each up each other up for disorder and disease in many cases uh, because we just miss these things and we don't have the skills as parents and you know as young adults to to function in another way to be more healthy to be more responsible in these things and it's kind of sad uh you know that that's the way it is but what are we supposed to do like reject you know what is or you know try and say it should be another way when it isn't that's what it seems to be that's what in my experience that's what it is and i mean people in their adult lives can slowly start to learn some things and get some skills if they have the interest uh but you know even when people come to therapy and all these things are revealed and explained people still often go away with like the attitude like you know, it's like not my problem. I'm not going to learn much about it, even if my loved one, ne you know, needs me to learn more so that I can be supportive in a different way. Like people with borderline personality disorder can really benefit from others learning how to be helpful simply through understanding what the disorder is all about and, and just acquiring a few skills um, such as like knowing how and when to validate and uh, not to, you know, enable the ongoing dysfunction. So to learn how to have um, clear boundaries, that kind of thing. There's uh, lots of good books out there about learning how to support uh, a loved one who has borderline personality disorder. Uh, you can easily find those in any of the online stores. So... But even though those resources are out there, it, it doesn't mean that uh, the people are going to take the time to learn. So what that means for people who have these issues is that um, they need a way to understand exactly what's going on and to get stronger. And they need to build up, uh, they need to build a way of acquiring these skills into their life so that you know slowly but surely they don't have to uh, experience all of the consequences that comes from not knowing how to deal with your emotions and not knowing how to adjust unhealthy thoughts and kind of 
like not knowing how to get out of the vicious thought, emotion, and behavioral circles or cycles that you can find yourself in and that lead to all kinds of unwanted consequences. And that's really the essence of a, you know, a person who has borderline personality disorders. They get repeatedly stuck in these vicious circles of thought, emotion, and behavior. And then the people around them usually will punish them or reject them or, you know, inappropriately judge them for what they do. I mean, because they have the people around them don't have a clue what's going on. They only see what they see. They don't actually see the internal struggle. And they don't see that the person with borderline doesn't know how to deal with it in any other way. So they just, they do kind of what society tends to do is just punish and judge. And they think that eventually if they punish and judge them enough that they will stop these uh, patterns and these behaviors, but that is not the way that it works. You cannot punish somebody out of disorder. They can learn skills and they can learn to be self-aware over time if they have the right instruction. If they don't have that, then they will continue with the way that they have learned to survive over time, which, you know, is, you know, to varying degrees toxic, but it's all that they could do without having any other way or way of learning how to do it differently. So, I mean, and sometimes I relate to my experience when I, you know, when I was 37 and I learned exactly what was happening with, with me. I mean, and I very uh, clearly explained to the people in my life, like, okay, this is what I think is happening. And this is, uh, you know, what I need to try and do to get better. And if you would help me and by learning some things and, and, and learning how to respond to me in different ways, when I'm having a difficult moment, it will probably proceed a bit better. And there was, you know, um, a bit of effort, uh, but I mean, people realistically they get they get busy in their own thing, right? And they they don't really have a lot of time and energy to be investing in uh, learning about my health needs and how they can support me in getting better. There's only so much time and energy and effort that they can give to that. So it comes back to the reality that. Uh, I have to figure out how to function in this world that doesn't seem to have the time for mental health. It, this world is not geared towards being uh, optimally healthy in this way. It is geared towards businesses making money and you know other things that people consider of the highest priorities. So really I'm like, I'm on my own mostly and i would suspect that most of you out there listening are going to be mostly on your own some situations might be a bit different and if they are then that's nice and you're lucky today i wanted to delve into the subject of self-worth somewhat I have talked about it in brief ways in other podcasts, but today I would like to explore it a little bit 
further and how it becomes a problem in our lives. As a therapist working in mental health, I have seen it as a recurring problem in both females and males. We do honestly tend to see more females than males in therapy, probably because they are more willing to access therapy services or perhaps they have more time in their everyday schedules to do so. I suppose it depends on the person. But no matter who comes into therapy, there seems to be a recurring pattern of self-judgment that happens where a person is wondering if they are good enough to be meeting the standards of everyday life. For example, are they good enough financially? Are they good enough physically? Are they good enough as a parent? These are questions that people have and that seem to plague them sometimes to no end leaving them anxious as to whether they are fitting in, fitting the mold, and so on. So when you're a therapist, you start to question some of these issues. Like why would people get hung up on these questions on such a regular basis? Why would it make such a difference to the way that they feel day to day and if they are anxious or emotionally overwhelmed. But nonetheless, it seems to be a recurring pattern. So we are left to wonder what is going on here. I have been a student of both sociology and psychology in my undergraduate and graduate studies. So I pondered these things regularly and somewhat deeply. And I've also made many observations since being graduated from my master's degree in psychology. And again, meeting with many people in my practice and collecting their histories and finding out, you know, how people come to be where they are at. So it seems to me that we live in a particular way of being a particular culture where people are somewhat left with few options in terms of how they want to live their life. I remember early on in college when I was starting and going for my first few orientation days and there were people who were offering credit cards to students to give them a bit of assistance, a bit of leverage, I guess, for getting through the first years of their college education. But the thing that stood out to me and that continues to stand out to me as a citizen in the free world is that we are offered ways to get into debt 
and debt seems to be something that we have a hard time avoiding. So it could be financial debt for student loans. It could be financial debt for vehicles. It could be financial debt for houses. But no matter what, when you are entering your adulthood, unless you have some kind of inherited wealth or privilege, you are most likely going to have to enter into the paradigm of financial debt so that you can drive a car, have a house, and get an education. And these are pretty big things that people need in order to move forwards and follow through with life. So as soon as you are done high school, you are entering some kind of debt agreement with the banks so that you can move on to the next step. And there may, again, maybe there are a few people who can avoid that because they have wealthy family or inherited wealth or what have you, but probably most middle-class people are uh, going down the path of accepting some kind of debt agreement in order to move forwards. And then when they are finished their education, they will enter more debt agreements <clears throat> so that they can have a, a place to live and a means to get to work. So, I mean, one of my observations going into adulthood was that there doesn't seem to be a way of avoiding this debt paradigm. And if you are a religious person, you will probably also notice that there isn't a way to avoid the spiritual debt paradigm where you are, for example, in debt to Jesus for all of your sins that you have committed. And you need to spend the rest of your life like repaying him through your obedience to the religious system. And likewise, when you have assumed some debt through the banks, you spend much of your life uh, being obedient to the financial system so that you follow through with your obligations to repay them financially. So I guess in a lot of ways, what I'm saying is that you enter into this debt paradigm. But how does this affect a person's self-worth in the long run? And that's my question, I guess, as a therapist. And probably because most people entered this debt paradigm, they spend much of their life doing things to make that a priority and repay the banks and repay the uh, spiritual entities for whatever they think they are in debt to them over their, over time. Now, okay, so how could this affect your self-esteem? So my thinking as a therapist is, is that you, if you prioritize um, 
some sort of uh, debt obligation to banks or if you prioritize some kind of debt obligation to spiritual institutions, then you will spend much less time uh, working on your own self-care, things that could help you to uh, realize like who you are, to develop self-realization, to develop other mental health skills, ways to regulate your emotions, and ways to uh, get through life that are, are healthy. So it's a lot to do with priorities, really. I mean, are you really that different from me wherever you grow up in the world? I have to ask, but are you really that different than me? Meaning that after you completed high school, did you start entering into some debt uh, agreements or obligations with banks and with maybe your uh, religious institutions if you are affiliated with any of those? Did you start assuming debt as soon as you finished high school? That is my question. And if you did, what did the, that what did that do to your overall lifestyle? Like, how did you prioritize what you were going to do with your time? Was your highest priority to serve the uh, the authorities, the banks, to make sure that you paid them back, or was your highest priority to? serve the religious institutions who you assume that you owed a debt to because you were labeled a sinner? That is my question. And then if you spent much of your time doing those things after you were finished high school, what did that do to you? Did you become institutionalized? Meaning did you start following a particular routine where you were prioritizing uh, paying your bills and finding a way to have enough money to get food and otherwise serving the people in your social realm who you felt that you were obligated to? So that could be your uh, cultural, spiritual institution maybe you're affiliated with. So people, you know, they come to therapy often and they feel that they haven't got to know who they are. They haven't figured out their identity. I mean, doesn't it make sense that if you have prioritized these other things over learning how to explore who you are and to have a way of gaining some level of self-realization, if you have given your your energy to banks and to religious institutions, wouldn't it make sense that you would struggle with your self-esteem? Like questions like, who am I? And what is my purpose here? And is there some type of some type of longing within you? Something that is saying, you know, I'm not just here to serve the banks. I'm not just here to serve the religious institutions. There's something more that is missing. 
and I have been neglecting that part of myself for many years. And it's resulting in some types of symptoms that I feel, and it could be some kind of anxiety symptoms or depression symptoms, which often happen when people are ignoring themselves. So, you know, am I ignoring what my mind and body <clears throat> is communicating to me? Maybe my mind and body is saying, look, something is missing. Like if you spend your whole life just serving these uh, powerful dominant institutions, are you missing something about yourself that, you know, was supposed to be developed and then it wasn't? because you gave your time and attention and energy to these other institutions that you started to believe were the most important things in life. And I think both males <clears throat> and females fall into these uh, institutional patterns, I guess. When I have met with uh, females in therapy, it is quite common and pervasive that they will think that they are not good enough uh, physically or in appearance to meet whatever standard is being projected by the media about what is acceptable and what is uh, sufficient if you are a female. And then likewise, as males, if you do not have a certain level <clears throat> of income, then you are subsequently inadequate and inefficient as a male. <clears throat> and it's all quite, I think, contrived and invented through the paradigm of capitalism, where we are led to believe that certain things are required uh, by the system and people will often say you know no those things don't really matter they aren't that important but when they go back to their regular lives though they focus entirely on trying to meet a particular standard in terms of wealth or beauty or privilege and then if they don't meet those standards then they are judging themselves as hopelessly inadequate. That they don't fit into the system, they don't fit into the narrative. And so they have a hard time being okay with who they are. But you have to ask yourself, you know, was this uh, system and was this narrative invented at some point and I think indeed it was um, I looked up where modern capitalism came from and it was born in the industrial revolution in Great Britain at the end of the 18th century and was spread throughout Western Europe and European offshoots thereafter so I mean, that's what we inherited, where, you know, if we were born in Canada or if we were born in maybe Australia, the, I mean, the Europeans uh, owned many of these places originally, and then they uh, became independent on their own.
But I do think that we follow their pattern about what it means to be uh, acceptable, what it means to be uh, good enough. And it has been emulated in the, you know, in the church institutions and in the media. And if you don't meet these standards, then you uh, are sort of regarded as inadequate or insufficient. And maybe people don't talk about these things on a regular basis. But where do their judgments really come from? I mean, you have to wonder. Are they judging themselves based on the comparisons that they are making with their peers? Like, what do they have? And do they have more than me? And am I supposed to be having as much as they have in order to be good enough? And also, I guess, in the spiritual religious realm, am I behaving in a way similar to my peers where I am going to be achieving and receiving the same end result as them in the long run? And if I don't, what does that mean for me? I guess what I am thinking overall, like if people are struggling with self-esteem, it is because they have been blocked by the dominant capitalist system. They have been blocked by realizing who they are, the truth of who they are. Realizing, for example, that they are not the physical body, they are not the physical form that they believe themselves to be. They are unable to realize this because of the illusionary world that they live in. Because our mind, which makes us believe that we are the ego, and because of the senses that make us crave for sensual pleasures, our mind limits us. It restricts our spiritual awareness. It is unable to focus and contemplate on the energy that lies beyond the physical form. So what I'm saying is that, I mean, people don't have the time for these things. They are so focused on repaying the debt that they are have been conditioned to believe that they owe to the banks and to the uh, religious figures because they have being led to believe that they are a sinner. So they, they spend much of their life repaying these debts instead of learning how to be healthy, learning how to know who they are. They don't have the time to engage in practices like that. So they don't ever really experience self-realization. So no wonder people would struggle with self-esteem if they are forever wondering who they are and you know what their what their real purpose is and so on they're basically living as a slave to the financial and the religious systems and if you're living as a slave there's no way that you can really know who you are at a core level and in that sense it's kind of a crime right i mean you've been your essence has been stolen, really, by these institutions. And they have uh, assumed or led you to believe that uh, you owe your all of your life and energy to them instead of being able to discover 
uh, who you are. And I guess, you know, that's kind of what bothers me in a lot of ways. Because these dominant institutions seem to uh, make themselves look to be so virtuous and helpful when in fact they are robbing you of your humanity. And so self-esteem problems will continue more and more and forevermore while people buy into the narratives of the dominant figures in society who have convinced us that they are, you know, they have our best interests in mind and they will lead us to the promised land in the end. But in fact, it's all just a lie. Today, I wanted to speak to the ideas discussed in episode 45 a little bit more about self-esteem and how it can be complicated through dysfunctional ties to financial and spiritual paradigms. So what am I thinking here? Well, sometimes I have to wonder as I am uh, recording my podcasts and sharing my views and ideas about mental health, I have to wonder if uh, some people might think I am distracted or misguided or off base or, you know, not focused on the topic at hand, uh, which is borderline personality disorder and all things related, uh, mental health. But I guess maybe most podcasts that talk about this subject, they would simply focus on how to uh, get skilled, you know, specifically how to apply CBT and how to apply DBT. And I think those things are important. And I do comment on those things here and there. Uh, but I do realize that um, I probably do focus on things like systems and a culture because I think it also has relevance to the topic. If a person simply gets skilled, I think that it can help them for sure to be functional, but does it actually give them the complete understanding to release themselves from a lot of the toxicity that surrounds them and that they may not even realize is a thing and that is influencing their thinking on a day-to-day -day basis. So for instance, if you give the systems the benefit of the doubt, like they, they have your best interests in mind, you know, they are good for you if you are obedient to the systems, you will, you know, have a good result. I think that's maybe the way the majority of people look at things. Like they say, you know, you can't criticize the system. If you criticize the system or the cultural institutions, then you are playing the victim. Uh, you are, um, you're, you're playing the victim. You're making excuses. You're just complaining instead of actually taking real responsibility. And I think, you know, a response like that is, is abusive, actually, because 
basically what it is doing is attacking the person relaying the message instead of addressing some of the real problems that we have in this world. It's a logical fallacy. It's called ad hominem. You might want to check that one out because, I mean, people use it quite frequently, especially, you know, when people talk about environmental issues, uh, you know, and all the related uh, health uh, matters. Quite often people who are uh, more liberal in their political mindset, uh, they have an appreciation for uh, social causes and health and, you know, try to uh, have discussions about these things. But then they are often labeled as uh, in different ways, negative ways, right? So they are attacked. They are labeled as hypocrites and they are labeled as, uh, I guess, playing the victim. <clears throat> so it's like it's quite a profound abusive tactic. I think that's what I would generally say. Uh, because it is simply attacking the person instead of uh, looking at the the main issue. So what is the main issue, right? Uh, well, people get sick, don't they? And they get sick frequently in the systems that we are in. And I guess a lot of my talking has been, you know, like how and why you know questions that maybe people don't reflect on too much they just kind of go well you know it's a combination of genetics and a combination of environment we don't really know exactly how you know these things come about and it's quite complicated um so i mean that's i mean if you look up how does bpd happen i mean you'll you'll probably come up against some kind of uh, vague vagueness like that and there probably is some truth to it like genetics do play a role and environment does play a role but is it just the home environment or is it more like the wider larger society and systems that we are encased in <clears throat> you know <clears throat> when i was in uh, college i uh my attitude changed about learning quite a bit like i had a pretty bad attitude about learning when i was in grade school because it just seemed like being forced to jump through all these hoops and just learn whatever they you know they they tell you and like just a lot of conformity right and i find conformity just disgusting much of the time but um when i got to college the professors, they were a little bit more like uh, um, provocative. They were a little bit more re rebellious in ways. So they would they would talk, especially the sociology professors. I had a, a deep admiration for them because they would talk about uh, society and culture and they would kind of point out the um, the problems that people are often ignorant of or, you know, they don't even realize are problems uh, in how we uh, how we are affected by the systems that we're in. So they were finally kind of seemed to me speaking some kind of truth. They were actually uh, pointing out uh, the things that people don't want to hear. 
uh, or maybe they're just not around company that would share these kinds of things in their life, right? So I was, you know, I, I was in the front row. I was raising my hand quite often asking questions. I mean, I was just right into it for the first time, like in my education. <laughs> so college was kind of cool that way, especially the sociology part, because I, I minored in that. Um, and I think it's influenced my um, my perspective, like, all the rest of the way even up until now a, a, a good solid combination of psychology and sociology so you know is peter playing the victim when he is talking about uh, narratives cultural narratives when he's talking about the uh, capitalist financial system uh, you know when he's talking about debt paradigms how we are almost instantly kind of introduced to debt and uh, like it's the only way to uh, survive if you want to have the same privileges as everybody else as I was saying in the last episode so like it's almost like debt has been normalized so they say like if you don't have a credit card you know like you can't book a hotel and I think and if you don't have if you don't get a mortgage you you can't uh, get a house right like you can rent I guess but uh, then you're just giving all of your money to the landlord but if you know if you want to uh, be able to save for for some retirement and if you want to uh, have you know a better house down the road then you need to get into the the debt system and you know i did all that uh debt for uh a house debt for schooling lots of debt for schooling debt for cars right and then and then i went to church on sundays and they talk about debt to you know you're in debt to uh jesus uh for your 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 life your whole life if you want to have a good experience on the other side so you know he sacrificed for you and um, now um, you need to show gratitude and do whatever the church tells you to do basically um, for the rest of your life and that's how you show gratitude um, but I think it's more like like it's paying the idea is that you're paying a debt like you can't you can't uh, qualify after you die you can't qualify for the best reward unless you uh, uh, pay this debt throughout your life so i think it's just really normalizing this whole debt paradigm so it's normal to go in financial debt it's normal to be in spiritual debt so you are like this um slave uh your entire life and people try and cover up, I think, that fact, right, by, you know, they try and cover up this kind of truth by going on vacations and having, you know, buying, going shopping and this retail therapy and, uh, you know, numbing, numbing themselves from what what is the, you know, the facts. Like, uh, some of the facts, I think, are, uh, and George Carlin, the comedian, puts some of these things very well, is that you're owned 
uh, by you know overlords basically the the ones who are the the richest the most elite in society they they own the best land you know they 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 all the the resources um, they are in charge right and you spend your life trying to be you know be like them or uh, sort of worship them in a way so that you can have similar privileges or even just even just a little bit similar you spend your life uh i guess trying to model what what they are but but i mean most people whether they're middle class or even high middle class i think they're just really just slaves to these people uh i mean there's people in my life that have more than me people in my life that have less than me but basically we all go to work uh we all pay bills we all have you know a few toys and things that we do to try and distract ourselves from what's really going on uh which is that uh, we owe our lives to these people who we have uh, gone into debt with, right? <clears throat> so people might like, they might not like my thoughts, my opinions, and I'm okay with that. Like, but you know what has really um, helped me in looking at things deeper and in these ways is that I can say like, look, these these narratives and these inventions that people have come up with like the the capitalist system is an it's an invention of the industrial revolution and uh you know i think uh religions are, are uh, an invention uh, as well and they they are kind of tied together in a way to just normalize debt and being owned by an overlord basically uh now, if if you if you if you don't want to look at it that way, I mean, carry on, you know, like do your thing, live your life in these uh, in these thought paradigms, and reap all the consequences, you know. And what are the consequences? And I think that's where I'm really headed with. Like, why do I talk about this so much? Because there are thought-related consequences, and I've talked about this in some of the other episodes about narratives. So if you give these institutions and these inventions, you, you give them the benefit of the doubt and that they're good for you, you know, and they're handed down by the gods and blah, blah, blah. You are going to be judging yourself on a regular, regular basis. Like, am I fitting in? Am I good enough? Do I measure up? You know, I think even the religions say you need to repent on a daily basis, right? So you need to look at your sins and go like, okay, I'm a sinner. I'm a born sinner, right? That's what the story says. And I need to... Uh, I need to ask myself, how have I screwed up today? And then I need to apologize for how I've screwed up today, uh, according to the narrative. So there's this daily pattern of judgment. <clears throat> and, you know, and the, the media that goes with uh, a lot of the financial aspects of our lives and all the advertising, I mean, that's set up to get us to judge ourselves too. You know, and do I look like the supermodel? Do I look like the, you know, the, the guy with all the muscles? Do I have the toys that I'm supposed to have at this point in my life? Like a boat or a hot tub, right? If, and, you know, I'm supposed to have these things at a certain point, aren't I? According to the uh, mainstream uh, advertising and the... The, the stories that they spin i mean guys do we don't we give these things way too much credit 
we actually think that they're real. We think that these stories that these uh, institutions spin are real. And then every single day, we have all of these thoughts about how we are doing in the story. Now, if you're able to actually detach from the narratives, uh, let go of the giving it the benefit of the doubt, like not be attached, right? How, how would that influence your thoughts? Like, would your judgments go down quite profoundly if you're like, you know, well, all the advertising is just a narrative designed to kind of get me to judge myself and ultimately get me to uh, spend my money uh, so that the people who are doing the advertising can get what they want, right? Which is my money. Uh, so it's just basically thought and emotional manipulation. So they get what they want by leading you to believe that you're not good enough. And it's the same in the, it's the same in, in religious institutions, if you ask me. Uh, it's thought and emotional manipulation uh, so that they can get what they want, which is your money to build their empire uh, and get more people to do the same, right? And so they have this gigantic empire. You know, by the way, if you want to build an empire, you need to have a good narrative, really. I think anybody who's really built a good uh, empire <laughs> anywhere in the world at any time, they've had like a good story to go with it, right? And, uh, and then the, they get the people to buy into that story and they get them so conditioned in the story that they can't help but think it's uh, real. But if you really want freedom uh, from borderline personality disorder, I mean, you do need some skills that are available through the different therapeutic modalities. Those can be helpful. Uh, but if you don't take a, a much bigger critical look at the world that you live in, you're going to be like, it'll be like an uphill battle in a way because your thoughts are going to be, you're gonna, it's always gonna be serving up uh, the thoughts about how you fit into the, the narrative. And it's the judgments, really. I mean, talk seriously, talk to any therapist out there and they ask them, um, how do people, you know, do you commonly see things about self-worth with people? Like, does anybody that you talk to feel like they're good enough? Ask a therapist, please. Um, and uh, I mean, unless they're from some other strange part of the world that isn't like modernized, industrialized, like, I think they're going to come up with the same thing. Like almost every case, there's that's part of it. I mean, it could be mostly uh, an anxiety disorder, right? Or mostly depression, but uh, associated with that is this, uh, this overthinking, this constant self-judgment, uh, feeling inadequate, feeling shame, right? And then the person is like clueless. Like, they're like, why do I do this to myself? Like every day, why do I judge myself so much? And I guess that's the kind of questions that I'm trying to answer with this podcast. So am, am I playing the victim here or am I trying to come up with a way to uh, be free from a lot of the unnecessary and harmful, toxic thinking that we engage in every single day? So I guess I would suggest, you know, don't give these institutions the benefit of the doubt. Don't think that they are real. They are uh, concoctions, man-made, designed to do one thing, which is have power, really, and to uh, get you to continue to submit to them, uh, mostly, I guess, financially in other ways with all your energy for the rest of your life. 
I mean, one person that I uh, talked to once, and this person was quite the capitalist, and uh, you know, I <laughs> I couldn't help but remember what he said, and um, he said to me, you know, if you're going to like, uh, if you're going to do something or you know if you're in a group the thing that you need to do is establish dominance early so you need to like figure out how you are going to be the one in charge and i think that that's uh you know that's the world that we live in these the people have established dominance early and they've also set it up so that they look like they're the good guys and they're doing us a favor <laughs> by getting us into all this debt and all, they're offering us all these opportunities, right? To uh, have a better life by adhering to their debt system. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you think about it. And I guess lastly, I just wanted to share, like I was, uh, I had an interesting experience at work. We were wearing masks for like years, right? For COVID-19 and um, just recently the, the, uh, the mandate to wear the masks was lifted. And, and I just was, uh, I noticed how conditioned I was and like, it just reminded me how easily humans are conditioned. So, so now I'm not wearing the mask on a regular basis. And, but guess what my thoughts are telling me? Like they're telling me that I'm making, I'm breaking a rule, even though the mask mandate has been lifted. So I was conditioned to believe that it was something that was like, almost like a moral thing to do, right? Like I was, I was protecting myself and I was protecting others. And I did it over and over and over again for several years. And now it's like, it's almost like hard to break that conditioning uh, and to say to myself, you know, it's okay. You're not a bad person if you don't wear a mask. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there as the last bit of, uh, you know, how we can be so easily conditioned and, you know, be again, just fall into these belief traps and so on. Today I wanted to talk about the subject of motivation, or in other words, being motivated to start taking care of your mental health. And as I've said in previous podcasts, um, I'm well aware from the many people that I've met with in my practice that it can be very difficult to prioritize mental health in a person's life maybe similar to the ways it can be difficult to sometimes prioritize physical health something tells me that it is even harder to prioritize mental health than it is to prioritize physical health and i think that there are lots of things going on here that are influencing how we prioritize our lives and also uh, if we are motivated or not to really start taking seriously uh, how to be mentally healthy. So uh, for starters, and you've again maybe heard me say this before, I don't think that we live in a cultural context that uh, emphasizes uh, mental health. It is sometimes appreciated and, you know, there can be special mental health days uh, 
that you hear about on social media uh, or, you know, maybe sometimes certain schools will have little modules or classes that they, you know, temporarily insert into their programs. I can't speak for every school everywhere and maybe some have some regular types of uh, learning nowadays. Uh, here where I am in Canada, I don't think that is the case yet. Although they have, again, maybe done some things here and there. I don't think um, people understand, actually, uh, it, this could be a reality check for some, uh, some of you out there. Um, and it really quite stunned me as I was uh, practicing in uh, mental health over the last 11 years, like coming more and more to see uh, how just generally ignorant people are of what it means to be healthy. I mean, you talk to people, right? And you try and sort out things and learn about their lives and try and like narrow it down to what the issues are that they're facing. And quite often uh, there there's some kind of uh, emotional challenge or a tendency to want to avoid certain kinds of feeling. And quite often that can be part of a personality disorder uh, BPD very frequently. Um, but when you start asking people questions like about emotions and how to deal with them, they just might even often admit like, I don't know what to do with those things. I just try my best to avoid the feelings that I don't like. And that's kind of the, the pattern that they've been in for years. And what makes people unique is the ways that they, uh, the things that they do to try and avoid the feelings they don't like. You know, like some people are workaholics and some people are alcoholics and uh, some people are uh, like porn addicts or sex addicts. Uh, sometimes there's a, a variety of uh, behaviors that a person uses to just continually try and avoid the feelings that they don't like because they don't know how to deal with their feelings in a more direct, authentic, uh, and healthy way. And again, like why would they have a way to deal with these things if they weren't raised in a context or around people who talked about how to do it? Uh, because the people that raised them we're also raised in a society that is primarily focused on, I would say, um, figuring out how to make as much money as possible, acquire material things, and in many cases, uh, how to get a reward after you die. Meaning, so like many people are focused on their religious activities and that's really high on the on the priority list so lots of their time and energy goes to trying to uh, get to heaven or whatever right so what kinds of things they think am i going to do to get there <clears throat> i mean you might even want to ask yourself has like mental health ever even been in like the top five or top ten 
of uh, the priorities in your life. I know for certain uh, in my childhood, I was not uh, in an environment where it was talked about. Uh, there was no skill, no knowledge, um, and no wherewithal to understand, like even come close to understanding something like borderline personality disorder. And these things are inheritable. There is a genetic component. Some, some families definitely have more emotional sensitivity that they pass down to their kids. And that doesn't mean that those kids have to develop uh, an emotional or personality disorder. It just means that they have the vulnerability or the, the predisposition. It's really the, the combination, from my understanding so far, of those vulnerabilities and a particular type of environment, uh, usually an environment that is mental health ignorant. Sometimes I say the word mental health retarded. It sounds a little bit more vulgar, but I think it's actually a pretty good description. Like people just don't know. They don't know anything about this stuff. So they accidentally uh, create problems in, in brain development for certain types of people, uh, especially again, those people who have those vulnerabilities. <clears throat> Instead, what you often see is that, you know, when people get quite emotional, uh, is that people get impatient because they don't know what to do with it uh, or they get just downright mean and rejecting uh, if they don't know what to do with the emotions that people have or how to be supportive, how to be a helper. And that's why you see lots of invalidation, like people saying things like, why are you being so emotional? You don't need to feel that way. Or why are you thinking like that? So it's a lot of uh, that, that uh, people developing or people who have BPD, that's what they hear. They hear the invalidating statements because the people that are around them have no idea uh, that the emotional center of the brain is deregulated and there needs you need to take an approach that will help regulate that part of the brain so that they can function in a more rational and logical way. But instead, again, you get the opposite. And then, you know, the emotions can get even more inflamed. The behavior can become even more erratic until, you know, something more chaotic and extreme happens. And, and then, you know, it's an even more forceful response. You might end up having the police involved or a person ending up in jail or, or in the hospital, right? And so the person with BPD often feels like, you know, it's just all me. It's all my fault. Uh, it has nothing to do with every uh, anything else going on around me. So I guess I would just really strongly argue that uh, I do think that we are in a cultural context that does not understand uh, emotions very well at all, and in particular, uh, emotional disorders. So, you know, if you are a person who is looking into this, um, you have to kind of come to the point where you say, um, okay, you know, this is the world that I live in. I don't live in a world that uh, cares a whole lot about mental health. I mean, there may be people here and there who, you know, show a lot of interest and try to help and, uh, 
It's usually people who uh, have suffered before, and I'm, I think I'm one of those as well. So, you know, I have a strong interest in uh, reaching out and doing what I can to, to be of assistance. But I mean, you do have to get to the point where you're going, you're, you're gotta go like, okay, like nobody's going to come and save me, really. I mean, people might step in a little bit here and there and they may be caring, but if, this is a, a condition that can take s many months to several years to uh, figure out and to like get the brain reconditioned uh, sufficiently that you're not having major episodes on a regular basis. So this is like long term and um, th the people around you are, are no doubt busy in their own lives, uh, pursuing their own goals, doing many different things. I mean, so they can provide a limited amount of support. Uh, you're, you're probably not going to get just like a dedicated helper um, to be kind of uh, tuning in deeply to what your needs are in, you know, each moment of your life. Like most of the time you're going to be on your own. Um, and now if you don't accept that kind of as like reality and kind of keep going like and waiting for other people to be there for you, you'll probably fall down and struggle more than if you thought, okay, I'm, I'm mostly on my own. I'm, for the most part, no one's coming to save me. Um, so I have to dig deep into my own learning and I have to get a, a self-care routine going that is focused on how to address this this disorder and a typical routine might include things like uh, reading about BPD, uh, having some daily meditation practices, uh, probably enrolling in a course that could get you completing exercises that are intended to help you become more self-aware, notice your thought distortions and self-defeating beliefs and in particular, understand how emotions get the best of you and uh, can turn into extremely unhealthy interactions with others that come with all of the unwanted consequences. The option to follow up with a therapist is, of course, ideal as well, but we all know that there's lots of people in the world who don't have that option. Uh, for various reasons. So, I mean, that's part of uh, what you could include in a lifestyle that is aimed at overcoming uh, borderline personality disorder. But again, what people will often do is uh, underestimate what is needed in order to make uh, this possible. Uh, you can't just go to a few counseling appointments. You can't just read like uh, a book or two or listen to a few podcast episodes. Uh, you definitely need to be working on yourself in some kind of consistent, uh, dedicated way uh, so that you can finally start noticing some of the changes. And those changes can look like being able to notice like what you're feeling in the moment for example whereas in the past you had no idea what you were feeling or what to call it 
with uh, your self-awareness being improved, you could say, oh, this is another one of those types of moments, maybe where I start uh, judging myself and feeling a lot of shame, or where I start worrying about parts of my life or the future and start feeling a lot of fear and that it shows up in certain ways and in certain parts of my body. And then when those feelings start to show up, I have certain things that I do that don't help the situation. And I need to practice some of these other skills that I'm learning uh, to let the emotion pass through my body and then think through what I can do uh, that is different than what I've done before. So that's kind of like, you know, sort of what a chain analysis exercise or part of a chain analysis exercise sounds like. But eventually you want to be able to do this kind of thing like in moment to moment life on the fly. You know, and until you can get to that point or that level of self-awareness, chances are very good that you're going to be continuing to uh, slide back into the old patterns or the dominant uh, neuro pathways in your brain that turned into all kinds of problem situations that we call borderline personality disorder. <clears throat> And because of the the way that most people live around you, I mean, it can be easy for you to get convinced that you don't need this kind of self-care routine and that all you need to do is what most other people seem to be doing, which is, you know, trying to uh, acquire more uh, and do recreational activities, go places, uh, you know, do their spiritual practices if that's what they're into and uh you know get ahead is kind of the thing right you can start to believe that that's all that's really needed to be okay um, but that is false or you might start to believe that doing those things will somehow take care of your mental health problems it will not uh, being successful in some sort of career or making lots of money will not fix mental health problems or being dedicated to whatever religion or church you go to, that will not fix mental health problems. In fact, it could uh, do the opposite, uh, if you ask me, because you might be thinking that this is all I need to be okay and happy when it isn't actually doing anything to uh, help you learn how to regulate emotions and to uh, get your brain working in different ways and challenging all the types of thinking that get your emotions stirred up in the first place. So I know I'm being kind of blunt here today, um, but I think really it's needed uh, if you are going to actually do something to help yourself. You can't be really deluded in any way if you're going to help yourself. You need to have uh, the right reasons to take this part of your health seriously. And I know that there's lots of resources out there that you can access in order to get this self-care or mental health self-care routine going. 
Uh, I have recently launched one myself called the Smarter Than BPD Premium Skills Training Program uh, that is also now available in what I call a solo study. So anyone in the world could uh, take a look at this program, uh, purchase it, and start uh, applying it so that they get this routine going. It is chock full with information, activities, practices, and different ways to reinforce uh, what you need to know to be healthy. And it also has a really uh, excellent way to increase your emotional vocabulary, which is one of the most helpful things you can do uh, for being able to settle down emotions. Uh, believe it or not, the more emotion words you use, and if you can use them in the right moments and talk about your emotions, uh, the better able you are to regulate your brain and use it more effectively and ultimately change every moment of your life. Today I wanted to explore the topic of emotions, surprise, surprise, and more particularly how people engage in conversations about emotions, sometimes in ways that they don't realize have certain types of consequences. As I've pointed out in a number of podcast episodes, I think that we inhabit a cultural framework that doesn't seem to care a whole lot about emotions in humans and uh, the importance of understanding them, exploring them, validating them, taking time for them. These kinds of things I think have been left behind or considered somewhat irrelevant in a modernized, industrialized, capitalized type of world. So basically what you have is, again, people who are focused on um, trying to set up a life for themselves, trying to survive in a money system, trying to get skilled, and otherwise enhancing and growing their ability and power in those ways. So what gets sacrificed again and again is different types of health and mental health, uh, absolutely. Because it can seem like uh, mental health just takes care of itself, but it does not. And um, what people often realize sometimes in their 30s uh, or late, you know, 30s, early 40s, is that it starts to take a toll on their mind-body system and they start to experience certain types of consequences. Could be uh, physical ailments, could be anxiety disorder, depressive disorder. So these things start to show up and sometimes the symptoms are so bad that you know it can't be ignored and people need to try and do something about it. That's the the cultural aspect but the subtle ways that people communicate about emotions. So this one uh, type of phrasing 
that has appeared uh, a, a number of times as I've been conducting therapy over the last 11 years. Uh, what people will say if we are starting to explore thoughts and feelings about some aspect of their life, they might say, well, there's nothing that we can do about that anyway. Or alternatively, there's nothing that I can do about that anyway. So they're kind of saying, if it's something that I can't change about my life or something that I don't know what to do yet, then we shouldn't even bother uh, talking about how it affects me emotionally. Uh, so they're basically putting in a, a block or a, a disconnect between themselves and their emotions. They're saying that um, the emotions don't matter. That's how I hear it anyway. So if you can't do something about a, a particular situation, just ignore the feelings. But what people uh, pro probably don't understand, in fact, I would say most definitely they don't understand, is that the experiences that we have uh, do affect us and the emotions that we experience uh, do need some uh, level of attending and understanding in order for us to remain healthy, emotionally healthy and otherwise healthy in our, in our nervous system and different aspects of our brain functioning. When we ignore our emotions, we set ourselves up for, I think, like a buildup in the body of unprocessed energy, which eventually translates into different types of conditions and disorders. So people get into this habit, and probably very much unconsciously, they get into this habit of ignoring their emotional experience, and even thinking maybe that it's a noble thing to do, and that it doesn't come with any consequences. I think that's really, you know, the level of, a, of understanding of mental health, maybe that much or most of the population has when it comes to um, understanding how to uh, live in a human body that comes with emotions. People will often have um, imbalances in their life where they are so heavily focused on work uh, and they let their health slide. So it's like, you know, work and health are always in this competition with one another. And we see that regularly in therapy as well. People want to succeed, they want to achieve, they think that, you know, that's where I'm going to get the best outcomes in my life, is if I focus on, um, you know, getting smarter, more powerful, having more money, those are the things that are going to make my life better. And they might say, if I stop to take time for parts of my health and things like emotions, then I'm going to be less competitive. I'm going to be maybe left behind uh, in the race to success. So people will sacrifice their health over and over and over. 
uh, it is again not really a priority but I wanted to bring out these subtle types of ways that we you know we do this to ourselves. and conversations I think are play a big role in that so you know you might want to pay attention when you're talking to uh, to the the people in your life you know when they start to have a little bit of feeling about some situation past current or future that they're pondering what is the reaction do we want to just shut it off right away or do we want to offer a little bit of space and a bit of understanding <clears throat> for that a part of ourselves with the understanding and knowledge that if we offer a bit of space for that part of ourselves then it can be um, restorative that it can be helpful healing and not just a, you know a, a small very small amount a few seconds but maybe offer you know a couple minutes of space for the feeling experience that humans have to offer some curiosity what was that like for you what did that feel like how is it understandable that anybody could feel that way in that kind of situation so you know imagine uh, including that in your conversations instead of kind of saying well there's no point talking about that anyway that isn't going to help us if you look at it from a mental health point of view it is actually very helpful to offer some time to acknowledge and understand and validate those things it doesn't mean that you have to wallow or get stuck or mired in those parts of the human experience but if some time is taken it can actually lead to a better outcome overall instead of a person having total emotional neglect in their life they could have some again restorative experiences that help them to have um, help them have the ability to proceed uh, and to complete things when they might otherwise burn out or want to give up because they're starting to experience the bodily consequences of emotional neglect and I wanted to uh, add to the podcast a little bit today um, some of the different ways that you can uh, be validating to to yourself and to each other I think people can be a lot more compassionate than they recognize and you know what they realize is possible and some of the things that I'm going to share here today come from uh, what's called uh, parts theory. So the idea that you have, you know, different parts of yourself and one of those parts is like a child part. Like what, what I see with uh, lots of people in their, in their childhood development is that they experienced a lot of uh, uh, dismissing, a lot of invalidation, a lot of again there's no point talking about it so there was this neglect and then sometimes you know if people got emotional there would be even 
kind of rejecting statements that they would hear or critical, judgmental. So they're not in the habit of uh, hearing compassionate words or giving compassionate uh, types of words and phrasing to themselves. So as I was saying, you know, when you validate, you want to understand the type of emotion, the type of emotional word that's relevant to their experience. You want to uh, kind of go like, you know, how could anybody feel that way? If you step into their shoes, what, what would it be like for, uh, you know, any person to be in that, that experience? and feel those things. I often have the starter, you know, it's understandable you could feel that way. Um, anybody could feel that way if they were, you know, if they were seeing things through your eyes and if um, they were looking at things the way that you are. So that's kind of like empathy validation and and, and don't kid yourself, it does take a bit of uh, energy and willingness and, again, time to give that to yourself and or give that to another person. And, again, are you willing to take that time to be, I guess we could say, a little bit more human, to invest in human health in that way? Or does everything else in life have to become a, a higher priority than your health, your emotions and your mental health. Now, if you can imagine yourself, I was talking about parts. Now, if you can imagine that you have an adult part of yourself and a child part, if you can imagine interacting with the child part of yourself as a moment of trying to take care of your feelings, and this is probably something that you would do on your own as opposed to in conversation. But you could probably use some of these wordings uh, in conversation with others as well in the, in the right context. But when people are um, expressing themselves or you're feeling certain things, you might want to kind of imagine the parent self giving to your child self these kinds of words. Like, I see you, or you are special to me. I respect you, I love you, your needs are important to me, I'm here for you, I'll make time for you, I'll keep you safe, you can rest in me, I delight in you. If you use wording, compassionate wording like that alongside uh, some of those other validating validating types of statements. It is um, a way of uh, settling and resolving emotions in a in a different uh, type of vibration. I guess I would say probably a loving vibration. And something that the, I guess, the ideal type of parent who is teaching emotions would give to their loved one. Sometimes when I'm doing this, I, uh, I have a particular scene that I use in my mind in a, like a beautiful place that I've been. And I imagine the adult self uh, kind of like 
being there with my child self and using validating statements and those very compassionate wordings. And also even uh, holding my hand, holding the hand of the child, right? So that you can feel that type of connection and care that feels um, like there is real attachment, that feels like there is real caring. So something to uh, ponder, the imagination can be powerful, the wordings that we use can be powerful, and of course we don't want to come across as fake when we're giving this to ourselves or others. Uh, genuineness is very important in being validating. But I think what I really wanted to convey today was the importance of attitude about mental health. And if you are recalling that, you know, humans need to be cared for, you know, as well as do other things like work and achieve, and there needs to be an ongoing consideration for balance in these regards. If you're keeping that in mind, like you can't keep uh, using a body or a mind without any maintenance, if you keep in mind that there is some maintenance activity, ongoing maintenance activity required, then you're going to have uh, probably a much better experience living in that body and reduced chances of having severe mental health disorder building in mental health maintenance into your everyday life with yourself and with your loved ones. Today I wanted to talk about relationships and also the four horsemen of the apocalypse from John Gottman that I've talked about in previous episodes. Those being criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So I've been a therapist now for uh, 11 years, practicing steady in a community clinic. I've also worked in private practice. I've worked with individuals and couples. And I often talk to individuals about their relationships. So I think it's fair to say that I have been exposed to a lot of the patterns that show up uh, and a lot of the dysfunctional things that tend to get repeated. One of the most interesting experiences I've had was to actually be uh, a couples therapist uh, do some sessions like that and uh, do observe people and what they do and of course I'm, I've seen uh, lots of the four horsemen of the apocalypse that tend to show up and it actually just makes me reflect more and more how I have fallen into those patterns at times many times in my life as well but I think the more interesting thing 
and what I want to explore and reflect on today somewhat is how there can be this, like this sense of entitlement. I might call it emotional entitlement or reactionary entitlement, um, meaning that people might have the idea that they can they don't have to take responsibility for their emotions or they they can react to their emotions however they please and then if people um, have a problem with that or disagree with that then they might say something like well i just won't talk at all then which is another one of the four horsemen or they might uh say something like well now you're not letting me have my voice you're not letting me have my feelings which isn't true and i've seen this in both uh males and females and i think we might even get a lot of these uh presumptions about what is okay and what is not okay from our culture from our media the tv shows the movies that we watch like what do we what do we see what do we observe I mean, we don't have the uh, mental health classes in our school systems, right? So, I mean, for the most part, that doesn't exist as far as I know. Uh, and uh, in many instances, families are not well aware of what it means to have uh, uh, healthy relationships and mental health skills. And these are not passed down to children or even attempted to because the knowledge just isn't there. So people get, you know, most of their ideas from the mainstream institutions. I guess nowadays it could be things like Facebook, right? Or Netflix, or uh, the churches people attend. Like, where do they get their ideas about what is healthy? What is the best way to live? We get these ideas somewhere. So I think the net result, I mean, of living this way is that people do have this sort of um, this ignorance of what is uh, healthy and also very much unconscious. So they don't often notice what they're doing when they're doing it. And also, again, this type of entitlement. So I need to be able to just be as wild and free as I want to be. And sometimes there can be differences between like the way uh, males can be like that and the way females can be like that. I think males very often can be kind of pointed out as being in the wrong because their, their kind of wild and free approach can include uh, lots of aggressiveness in many instances. Not to say that females don't do that too. Um, but they can, you know, be more intense in many cases. Uh, females sometimes can be more subtle and more passive aggressive. And yet they're still doing those four horsemen of the apocalypse, especially the, the criticism and the contempt types of things. And, but also the stonewalling. I mean, I've seen in many instances where people uh, give up on interacting like so if they're talking about a subject and maybe people are saying difficult things or ask answering questions 
uh, and they have a feeling that they don't like, then they just suddenly decide they're going to walk out of the room. Uh, or, you know, they're not going to participate because they don't like the feelings that they're having. Not necessarily maybe that anything abusive is happening, but something is said and they don't like the feeling that they're having, so they're just going to uh, walk away. Or they might just go silent, right? And I guess that would be more classic stonewalling. I'm just not going to talk if I don't like what's being said uh, or if I don't like the feelings that I'm having. And I've talked to um, a few clients uh, who have been in situations that with either their partners or with family members and it's like they're trying to decide um, you know what 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 should I put up with or what should my boundaries be and it's almost like they sometimes think I should put up with like anything uh, because you know I'm supposed to be forgiving I'm supposed to honor my mother and father right like they have these uh, ideas or these beliefs that they picked up somewhere and so they don't they kind of uh, think that it doesn't really matter how people are they just have to kind of put up with it and I think what I want to do today is really kind of call bullshit on that and I think it is fair to say that we can ask people to uh, grow up a bit or a lot, learn some things, mature, become more self-aware, and realize when they are saying and doing things that are adding toxicity or poison to communication. And the, you know, the four horsemen can look like certain things and it's good to kind of clarify. So, if there is criticism, I mean, it can be just someone di directly, you know, judging you and saying, you know, what they think is wrong with everything that you say or do. And it could be um, someone kind of being underhanded or conniving and saying something that sounds like, I guess, what they call a guilt trip, right? Where they don't directly judge you, but they say something that, you know, could easily be taken as a judgment. So that's the, you know, the passive aggressive type of criticism. Um, and then if they start to throw some labels in there, like, you know, no good loser, what have you, you know, then it's starting to get into the contempt, right? And of course, the you know, yelling, berating, the more obviously abusive things um, fall into that category too. Or, you know, if you're having a discussion and someone is just being defensive about everything that you say, so maybe they're denying um, something you're bringing up is a problem, or maybe they, every time you are asking for some kind of change, maybe they're pointing out your faults every time. So that doesn't uh, help discussions either. So, I mean, you need to... Uh, and I need to, we need to, on a regular basis, kind of go like, what am I putting into the communication? And I'm, uh, am I justifying myself? Am I saying, you know, I don't have to follow these rules of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I don't need to learn more about myself and my emotions so that I'm not instantly doing these things that are toxic and poisonous. Are you holding yourself to a higher standard? 
are you um, thinking that there's some room for growth still? Anyone with either borderline personality disorder or not can be doing these things. And I think it's very often when people are, they remain unconscious that they are doing these things that it can get really, really ugly. And where there can just be so much pain being tossed back and forth that people end up doing kind of wild and bizarre things and harming themselves and harming others. <clears throat> but again, I guess I'll bring it back to once more, um, you know, can I just do whatever I want in relationships? I mean, in some obvious instances, I mean, I could, I could say, of course, well, I can't just like, I can't just, uh, start attacking somebody physically. Right. And then after the fact go like, well, I'm sorry, you know, I couldn't help it. It was just like, I got, my emotions got the best of me or, you know, it was just my way of expressing myself. Like, I can't get away with that. Like in those really obvious abusive things, but also the more subtle abusive things, should people be able to get away with that? So if they're being constantly critical or if they're using lots of the guilt trips and, uh, you know, walking away from conversations when people are just trying to be honest, is that something that we should just be allowing in our relationships and saying, well, it's just the way it is. It's just the way that humans are. Uh, oh, and we just need to like, um, you know, forgive and forget and not expect anything more. I think that would be a huge mistake. And to follow these ideas uh, that we just have to bear each other's burdens forever kind of thing, like people never have to grow up. Right. Or you have to honor your mother and father forever. They never have to grow up. <laughs> Like, what a joke, right? So people could just be abusive as subtly or as obviously as they want to be. And we're supposed to put up with it for the rest of our lives. I think we need to ask ourselves these questions and, you know, sometimes have the courage to put boundaries in place until or at least people are ready to acknowledge what they are doing and decide to learn and mature and become a little bit more self-aware so that they can see when they are putting poison into communication, whether it's male or female, whether it's obvious toxic stuff or more subtle toxic stuff that is happening. I think it's okay to want that, even, I guess, demand that when we're in relationships and to not be fooled by some of the ideas that maybe have been uh, instilled in us through mainstream institutions. <clears throat> I mean, do you want to be uh, uh, being abused for the rest of your life in your relationships, right? And uh, do you want your children to carry on those patterns as well? Or do you want them to have a better life, a better experience? And we have to um, sometimes make decisions, right? 
when people uh, don't want to have a mature type of love, whether in a significant relationship or with parents, if they don't want to grow up, we have to sometimes make uh, difficult decisions about what to do, uh, whether to stay or to leave these relationships. And it can be a very difficult choice to make or temporarily leave relationships, right? But I know that people do it and I've worked with people who have done it because they can see that their loved ones are not going to uh, awaken. They're not going to acknowledge the toxicity that they bring to the relationships. They're not going to learn about their emotions. Uh, they're not going to learn other ways to deal with their emotions. They have <clears throat> an, a sense of entitlement that they can do these abusive things. And sometimes they use their title like, I'm your mother or I'm your father and you have to um, respect me. Kind of like no matter what or whatever approach I take to the relationship because that's who I am and or I've made sacrifices for you. So I don't have to grow up. I don't have to be... Uh, a healthier human being but you have to listen to me and i guess just lastly i'll bring in that concept of everyday narcissism <clears throat> where people have been conditioned to believe that they are responsible for the emotions of others and they might also believe that others are responsible for their emotions and if again if you, you're going to carry those myths, those types of beliefs, those are only going to reinforce the ideas that I've been talking about where people have this entitlement, where they think they can um, be as immature as they want. And, uh, you know, people have to put up with it because everyone is responsible for everyone else's emotions. Uh, but if we stay in that format, then, you know, things will not shift or people will not decide to uh, grow up. They won't read any books. They won't attend any therapy. They won't develop the courage to master their emotional experience. And I just want to clarify as well that I'm not saying people should be totally on their own with their emotions. I think it's okay to help one another and to offer some validation, and that can be very important in borderline personality disorder. But they're all that needs to be balanced with a person's willingness to learn and grow and get stronger and get skilled so that they can bring uh, healthier attributes to their relationships and that things can go more, they can go smoother and problems can get solved without huge disruptions and huge conflict so please do um, check out my new course the smarter than BPD premium skills training program you can learn everything you need to know to grow in these ways and it is a solo study although I'm also available to answer general questions about BPD and the course uh, th through Facebook, 
um, the Facebook page, or you can even message me. You can access the course at stbpdskillstraining.ca. And uh, there are other resources at my blog, smarterthanbpd.info. So thanks for listening today. I know some of these things can be hard to hear, but it's important that we make these clarifications and that we uh, highlight, you know, the things that people might not think about very much or they might think is okay to be, uh, uh, you know, toxic in certain ways. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it's not okay to be toxic in your relationships. And just like, you know, if you're going to drive a car, you need to learn all the rules of the road so you can be a safe driver. If you're going to be in a relationship or if you're going to have a family, I think it is essential that we all learn to grow and mature and learn sort of the rules of effective communication and when we are doing things that are harmful and when we are doing things that help each other on their their journey through life. <laughs> <laughs>